what on earth are you doing to heat treat something that's got 1.6% carbon? Magic. Yeah. The blood of your the blood of a moose. <laughs> Good day, eh? <laughs> Good day. Good day, eh? And welcome to another Forge Side Chat, where we talk about blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and everything in between with a heavy focus on talent in the great white north. Uh, Toolkid there, he's talking about Canada, eh? And uh, today on the show, we've got another guest from the USA. This time we're heading way north up into Alaska, though. And we're bringing Spencer Sanderson onto the show. Good day, Spencer. How are you, sir? I'm great. What's going on? Oh, you know, doing good, sir. Things are great here. Welcome to Forge Alaskan- Side Chat. Alaskans are like honorary Canadians, anyways. <laughs> we're, in the, we're in the real north, man. Yeah, they uh, almost, uh, you know, know, they know the north better than we do in a way. But we were just chatting, pre chatting a little bit, and Winnipeg saw minus 40 the other day, and Spencer saying, well, that's. That's real cold. We really don't yeah. get to see that up here in Alaska where he is. So you... where you're at, though. People in Fairbanks, what's north of Anchorage, they're probably like, I don't know, I think it's maybe four or five hours from Anchorage to drive. They're used to seeing minus 40. That's like normal winter temps for them. Okay, and that's only a four-hour, five-hour drive for you, eh? Yeah. Cool. Oh. What are the what are the highways like up there? Do you guys got good highways, or is it kind oh, of all? Uh... That's that's interesting you say that, but because uh, I work in road construction, so we're always working on roads and building roads. Man, they asphalt doesn't last here, you know. Nothing really does. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of like Canada. Yeah, they're very desolate, man. I mean, there's really nothing in between. You got maybe a little town here and there, but uh, that's about it. Little two lane <laughs> roads. Mm-hmm. Yep, kind of makes me feel like we're, you know, back home talking about this right now. That's that's for sure, eh? Yeah, there's probably mm-hmm. a lot of similarities. Yeah. So Nick, buddy, how you been? What's going on, dude? Oh, you know, other than my continuing mental health crisis, uh, it's going okay. I'm working on fixing up my um my hydraulic forge and press there. I uh, had to try and get some bolts, uh, some uh, broken off bolts out of some holes today, and that was uh, all kinds of fun. And I'm trying to get my head back in the game to take another crack at that draw knife that oh so dramatically failed last week. Yeah. Well, huh? Back on the horse. Nice. Nice stuff. I'm glad to see that you're just jumping right back at it, not giving up, man. That's good. Well, well these things happen. It's blacksmithing. Stuff fails. That's that's true. That is true. Yeah. Definitely can't uh, let failure just slap you in the face and give up when you're a blacksmith. That's for sure. You kind of take it for what it is, and you learn and you move on, right? Oh, yeah. You've got to be able to roll with it. How about you, Lando? I got my freaking hydraulic press working, dude. It's, hey! uh, Put a new control valve on it because I found that the control valve was leaking and bada bing, bada boom. Oh, that was the problem. Uh, oh, she's right working. Yeah, now she's working good. And uh, got a couple things. That I, I sold my first knife, dude. Somebody messaged me. I have no idea how this person knows of me. And they're like, hey, I really love the things you make. Do you have anything for sale right now? not really let's see what i got and i like ran to my shelf of things that i've kind of put aside for myself and i 
grabbed some things that I'm willing to let go, threw them on the table, took a picture of it, sent it to her, and she's like, I want that knife. All right, sure, I guess so. And, you know, there you go. Lando yeah. is now officially a bladesmith. It's <laughs> 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 bound to happen. Eh? Is it really a knife, though? Because it's a spike knife. Sure. Does it have a sharp bit to the handle you can hold on to? Well, yeah. 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 That's the but seed, man. That's sounds seed. sounds like a knife to me. <laughs> the seed, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Many more. Yeah. Other than that, man, just plugging away, freezing my ass off, dude. Like I said, minus 40 here. So it's uh, unfortunately, when it's that cold, it is really hard for me to be in the shop, man. I Because I got the exhaust system that I have to run. If I don't run that, the carbon monoxide builds up off the hop once the forge is going it's fine but off the hop the carbon monoxide it takes a little bit for the forge to heat up and the carbon monoxide yeah. builds up that, at that point right carbon monoxide's no bueno right so when it's when i'm heating the forge up what i do is i have the door open a little bit have the exhaust going and at minus 40 man yeah nothing is heating the shop i can have like three heaters going have the forge going and it's still freezing cold in there so it's just yeah, like burr. not to. Yeah. So and the electrical bill I learned from last season, I do not feel like having six hundred dollar electrical bills again this year. So like Yikes. once a month, it's like, yo, dude, it's kind of making this uh you kind of start to question whether or not you really want to be going into the shop at all at that point, right? How big yeah. is your shop? It's twenty eight by thirty six with a ten foot ceiling. Okay. That's so. pretty good size. It, yeah, that's the thing is it's the, the size of that. It takes a little bit to heat it, right? Full cement floor on there. The walls have this whatever type of weird insulation, though. They don't have, like, the insulation between the studs. It's, like, some sort of, like, overlay insulation. And then the in walling wall that goes over top of that or whatever. Oh, interesting. Panel, panels that go over top of that on the inside. Yeah, I kind of question whether or not that insulation is the greatest. Plus, there's a big, like, 16-foot or 20-foot overhead door. And you know how overhead, well, overhead doors are insulated, right? A couple windows. And it all it all adds up real quick, right? Yeah. See, these are the disadvantages of, of uh, having a big shop. My little one, it warms up pretty quick. It doesn't stay warm for very long, <laughs> considering I don't have insulation up top yet. But, uh well, one of the things I found in my old shop is I had the overhead door, and I never used it, so I actually doubled the overhead door, dude. Holy frick, man! That that increased it makes the a big so difference. much, man. Those that's what I'm saying. Those overhead doors they suck for insulation, dude. They're brutal. Yeah, uh, my dad has a big like insulated tarp setup that he covers his shop door with for the winter. Smart. I like it, and I'm gonna do it. Thank you, Nick. Tip number yeah, one it, of the day. Yeah. Get an insulated tarp. Uh, you've got a wood frame around your garage bay door anyways. So you can literally just do the grommets, put a screw with a big, like, uh, fender washer. Yeah. Right? And just stretch it out tight. And uh, it actually seals up that door pretty well. And uh, helps she loves it. It's a little bit more pleasant for the winter. She loves when I do, when I do that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> And it's begun. 
What's on the table lately, Spencer? What do you got going on in your shop, bud? Uh, actually, I'm making a bunch of knives right now. I'm trying to make a uh, inventory. Um, I usually, you know, I used to uh, I'd get off of work because uh, I work seasonal, and then I would start jumping into orders. People would hit me up and say, hey, you know, or, or I would make a post like, hey, you know, hit me up if you want something, and then orders would start start coming in. But this winter, I'm not doing any of that, and I'm trying to build an inventory uh, to just have a bunch of work. And I want to start going to like local little craft fairs or, or maybe get a booth at, uh, you know, one of our uh, a big uh, our fair that we have here every uh, fall. So right. that's kind of what I'm working on now, but mostly blades. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I've seen you've been doing uh, some cable Damascus lately, eh? Yeah, yeah. A lot of wrought iron cable, just whatever, man. Trying to be creative, do stuff, do something different sure i uh, actually just played with some cable damascus and uh it was some that was given to me by somebody else and it looked fairly decent threw it in the forge brought it up to almost a forge welding temperature not quite went to go start forging it out and it literally just started those the strands were fraying out like crazy and once it started oh. it just it just kept going, and I was like, "Oh my god, what the heck happened?" No here? coming back from that one. Holiday no. quick, man. I mean, there's no really forging it. Just uh, unless you got the ends welded up really well, I just get it to a welding temp and you know make it homogenous. Yeah. Well, no, it was a it, the, it was a billet that somebody else had forged welded before, and they gave it to me. It was an offcut of something they had made a something out of, and they they just gifted it to me as a piece of Damascus, and I was like, oh, awesome. And I figured, you know, there was enough there that I could actually forge it out into a little blade, maybe. And uh, seeing as I'm a bladesmith now, I was like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. I don't know, man. That, that sounds bad, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's never nice when you've got uh, cable Damascus that's uh, just not welded up and it starts fraying all over the place. I, I definitely like to have the ends of it when I go to initially forge weld it. I weld that up solid. The ends yeah. of the cable billet. Yeah. Oh, I'm kind of uh, thinking that maybe I need to start making some of my own Damascus here. It's uh, see if I can get that down there. I played with that that copper. Go Did you see that it. little? copper thing yeah that was sweet i don't know what it's supposed to be but it's cool boss says it looks like a butt plug with a relief valve on it (laughs) a butt plug with a relief valve (laughs) 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 oh god well um so what i did is i had one inch flat quarter one inch by quarter inch mild steel flopper i think it was maybe three sixteenths actually um and i cut it into five or six inch strips probably made five of those and then i put copper strips in between each layer the copper wasn't quite the same dimensions as the mild steel it like it was shorter than the mild steel so it was like four inch long pieces of copper in between and then um i actually overhangs on the end that's right. So then I I MIG welded those overhangs together and then got it up to forge welding temperature in the in the forge, put it under the press, gave it the tiniest little juice and 
you could just see the copper go pink out of it a little, just a little bit, not like a lot, right? It was just a little pink. You could see the copper spray out. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's all it needed for sure. Took it out, yeah. let it cool down. I let it get to like, you know, down to a black temperature. It was still hot. Threw it in the water, quenched it. Just, and I was like kind of curious to myself. I was like, is this, what's this going to do? Is this going to blow it apart? I don't know what I'm doing here. It was just all fooling around. So, you know, and it, it quenched fine. I was like, okay, great. Now it's cool. Let's see what I did. Took the grinder to it. Wow. This welded together perfectly. And I, I posted a picture of that on my Instagram too of what the welded billet looked like. Then I took that welded billet, put it back in the forge, brought it up to almost the forge welding temperature, gave it a twist, brought it back out, did the same quenching procedure on it. Then I took an angle grinder to it, cleaned it up a whole bunch because it was like super, it was all jaggedy. Once I twisted it, the copper kind of squeezed out a little bit and stuff like that. And so I took the angle grinder, cleaned up that leftover copper that was squeezed out of it ground down the sharp edges of the uh, the mild steel and whatnot and expose the layers a little bit more by doing that and ended up making what looks like a butt plug with a relief valve on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have not gotten to play with doing like uh, Kumai or anything like that yet. But as far as I understand, if you're doing like pattern manipulation and stuff for it, you don't need to have it quite up to forge welding heat. You're going to have a lot of your copper wanting to melt and shoot out. Right. But you also have to have it at a high enough heat that the layers don't separate, because it will. Yes, but the thing is, that what's bonding those layers is basically the copper is, you're essentially forge brazing. Oh, yeah. The layers oh, yeah. together. So as long as you're, you know, up at a temperature where everything is flexible, and uh, especially the copper is, is nice and ductile at that point, you should be fine. Yeah, like seven shouldn't want to shear. What was that? So, like 1,700 degrees is fine. Yeah. You know, at which point you're looking at, like, orange. Yeah, that's that's the Definitely not up to forge weld. When I say forge welding temperature, I mean forge welding temperature of the copper. Not for normal forge welding temperature. You, I don't oh, know. Okay. You know you can see the forge welding temperature of copper? Yeah, like it starts can, to get all kind of... Well, it looks the same way that steel does kind of when it gets up to forge welding temperature it starts looking yeah but you weird can any... and plastic and glassy and and you know, I, I don't know because i i mean i've made uh a few like kumai blades and stuff but i've always welded up my billet so oh yeah all the way around yeah see i wonder the copper anywhere to go yeah, yeah. right then your layer stays nice and thick inside of there because that's what i i noticed is when i twisted it that layer got a lot thinner yeah. Ah, well, twisting smart. also just naturally wants to like compress your layers, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's why you don't do really high layer counts for twists. They just end up looking like nothing. Oh yeah. Eh? Yep. Yeah. If you do uh, twists with any significant amount of twisting, anyways, over about a hundred layers, like it it just gets really super squashed together and hard to see. You don't get as much kind of pattern out of it. So what's the trick to just getting like just like the waves kind of thing like it kind of looks like you know like the the heartbeat pattern or whatever you like Fuller. but super tight fuller yeah yeah it's basically a ladder pattern yeah you either either fully your billet then grind down or yeah. cut in grooves and flatten accomplishes the same thing are you talking about like kumai 
Oh, with any Damascus, I see that with yeah. the guys that make the patterns, and you, that's like that seems to be like the more basic pattern is just like the the really tight waves going down the length of the blade. Oh, yeah, okay. it's basically a ladder pattern. Yeah, yeah. Is that okay. and that can be accomplished either way, whether it's forge in and grind off, or grind in and forge flat. It accomplishes the same thing. But that's like, like, okay, so like on a kumai, like I've seen kumai where like the copper go, like it spikes like way up to the, what is that, the heel of the blade and like back, right back down again. Like that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That's done by. Yeah. So as you, when, when you fuller your billet, that'll give you those waves. Cause then once you flatten it out and then you grind your bevel, that'll give you that wave. And you, when you say you flatten it out, you flatten it out by grinding it flat, right? No, no, no. Forge it flat. Like, like, we, like when you have your – when your billet is mostly really thick, then okay. if you fuller it with, like, rounding dies on a press, let's say, and you fuller that billet out and it gets longer and then you just flatten it out, you know, put your flat dies in or put it on the anvil with really? the batter, flatten it back out, and once you grind your – however, your – most kumai is just stock removed. Right. You, I'm not saying you can't forge it. You know, you can. And I've only forged the tip into a blade with uh, Kumai before. But once you, you know, grind your blade out and you start to grind your bevels in, then it'll give you that. You'll see that wave in there. And that's from, you know, the, the fullering of it. If you, if, you, if you just like took a billet and like put it in your kiln or something or your forge and then didn't do any, uh, you know, deformation to it, no manipulation and we're just right knock remove a blade out of it typically you'll just get a straight line like you'll see a lot of guys who have that they'll you know they'll do like yeah. a my blade or like a sand my and all you see is a line that just it's straight and there's no way hmm. it wasn't manipulated yep uh. now uh, what he's talking about when you can forge your fullers in and then forge flat that'll tend to give you a more gradual sort of undulation Right, okay. it's not going to be as like sharp and dramatic, right? Yeah. If you're looking to get really tight patterning, it you got to do a little bit of removal. Now, whether that's forging and then grind the thing flat, or the way a lot of guys do it is you take the billet when it's cold with an angle grinder, or even on the edge of two by seventy two, and you grind in to... fullers and then flatten it. As That'll have a really it. dramatic up and down. And long as your cladding is thick enough, because if it's yep. too thin, you'll just grind your cladding away. Yes, that is definitely something you've got to be taking into consideration. Yeah, I almost did that on some cable knives I was working on. I did some cable sand mine, and I was like, man, I'm pushing it here because it's pretty thin. And I had it on a surface grinder, and I was, you know, grinding any inclusions out or scale, you know, and got it all nice and crispy. And I was like, man, this is looking shady. <laughs> but it, it, it turned out pretty good, so I was pretty happy with it. Hmm. So how deep would you go then? With something like that, for the the fullers, yeah, with with the angle grinder idea. I guess that's all relative to how thick you want your knife to be. I mean, yeah, and how thick your billet is at the time. Yeah, how thick okay. your cladding is like. What's your? Th is there's your, a lot of variables there. What's is the cladding like? Is that that's for San Mai or what is? It, it's your outside layer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so if yeah, if you're doing it with um, whether you're doing it with copper for kumai, you'll typically have like core copper and then outside cladding, right? Whether that's going to be a carbon seal, mild steel, wrought iron, whatever it's going to be, right? 
And then when you go to do your grinding, you've got to be careful not to grind too deep into that outside layer to make sure that it's you're not going to get to a point where you're grinding the whole cladding layer away afterwards. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's, there's pluses and minuses to doing it lots of different ways. And a lot of that kind of comes with what sort of effect you want to achieve and, you know, what what the project is. Like, there is a lot of variables in that. You know, it's a little bit easier when you're doing something like Ladder Damascus because you don't have cladding per se, right? The whole thing is becomes sort of a monolithic piece of hardenable steel. So as long as you still have enough material to make your blade afterwards, you're good. Aren't you glad I know nothing about Damascus, man? Well, Gotta get you on to it, man. It's a lot of fun. We'll be making a lot. <laughs> I love you. Oh, thanks, Lando. My wife, I didn't. I forgot to grab a beer. My wife was like, "You can have one of my what does she call these things? Tiki rums." I don't know. It's freaking twelve, twelve point five. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I will, we'll it's see. vodka and juice, right? Uh, rum, rum and juice. Uh, yeah, rum and juice. Yeah, yeah. Lando's drinking a floofy drink. I am definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Gotta keep me uh, motivated, that... eh? <laughs> oh, <laughs> now I've got like a G Funk beat rolling in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's not bad. Casey. So, man, half the reason we wanted to bring Spencer on is he's playing with the Woots, and that's pretty interesting stuff. And I know nothing about, well, I know nothing about nothing, obviously, here. As, I as have I'm, all you know, the questions. <laughs> Well, Nick, you want to start it off, my man? Okay. Well, I think the, the, <laughs> the way to start this is to say first, how did you first get started into doing the woots? What well, was the the process for that? So, you know, the real driving factor of it was, uh, you know, I'm a smith at heart. And I've always wanted to make my own steel or, you know, smelt my own iron. Um and really what it came down to was just, I don't really have a place to, you know, make my own steel in a, like a furnace, like smelt my own iron uh, in my yeah, backyard. You know, not doing blueberries. Like, yeah. like my wife would probably freak out, you know, and it's such a long process. So it's like, hmm, you know. An unreliable process, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know, that's what really piqued my interest in. And I've always, you know. Being a being a um, being into blacksmithing and bladesmithing, I've always known about woots. I never if you'd have told me two years ago that I was gonna be here where I am now, I would I'd been like, What? You know? But I just like I said, I just, you know, uh wanted to make my own steel and that wasn't an option. So I was like, hmm, crucible steel and I just went that route and I started uh, doing a lot of research and reading on it before I ever even made it. And, um, you know, I would, cause I work uh, road construction and there's no time to do anything because you work 12, 18 hour days and you're living on the job site. And then you go back to your RV or your trailer and the little time that I would have, I, you know, cause I told myself, okay, when I get laid off this season and winter comes, I'm going to jump into making this. So I'd spend any kind of free time I had 
there on the job, just learning and reading and researching, asking questions. And then I jumped into it when I got laid off and I had everything sitting there kind of ready to go. Um, Made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot. Um, Yeah. So that's how I got into it. Right on, man. So what is the, for the listeners, what is the process of making Woots look like? Well, actually, maybe we should take a step back. What is Woots? For anybody who's not informed on this, what is it exactly? Well, it's it's a it's a crucible steel, um, primitive crucible steel. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was made like two thousand years ago. Uh, it's an ancient Damascus, and it's basically uh, a how can I put this? Um, it's a very high carbon steel, and the reason you have patterning is basically because of all the free uh, carbide in the steel. Um, I mean, there's, it, you got to understand, Woots is a pretty complicated subject. Uh, and it can get very deep. So, oh, can it ever? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, essentially, it, Woots is a crucible steel. And there's many different names for it. There's, I, I, I believe, uh, I was reading that even some people even argue that Woots isn't the correct name for it you know but it was made in so many different regions um uh throughout the world that i mean there's the, the history of it i'm not really concerned about I haven't you know I, I i have information on the history at my fingertips but history is not something i'm concerned about when it comes to making or recreating not what i'm concerned about well that's fair enough i mean I've got all of that locked away in my brain. <laughs> I think yeah, that I could probably tell you a lot of what a lot of what is out there. Um, depending on who you talk to, if you I don't know, doubt you talk to the people that I talk to, but uh, a lot of the information out there is incorrect, man. There's a lot oh yeah, there's a lot of mythology out there about that it's, stuff it's, too. Not even yeah, not even that. I mean, there's so much misinformation on the subject that it's it's laughable it's it's, it gets bad oh yeah what would be some of the highlights of uh, misinformation that are out there so a lot of it is uh let's see i guess i could start by saying pretty much basically uh the 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 papers (laughs) the papers from uh, a lot of uh, Verhoeven and Pendre's work, a lot of that stuff wasn't uh, Pendre's true process, wasn't what he was really doing. And it was, you know, the, that documentary that you see on YouTube, well, you know, that was published before uh, or after his death. And that wasn't his real process. You know, what, what, and, and even in the papers that you read, um, a lot of that uh, process wasn't, wasn't real. It wasn't it wasn't what he was really doing so interesting that's, yeah that's pretty uh and if and if <laughs> if you read their papers um which i've gone back okay so let me start by saying this so there's uh something that i've been into and it's called the international Wood society and there's hmm. guys in there uh i consider well not that i consider that are like these guys are Woots experts, man. And their knowledge on the subject and metallurgy is just 
phenomenal. I've learned so much from these guys. And that's where there's a lot of information on the history, um, you know, the, the, the true processes. And I, it's, it's just a fountain of information. I've learned so much. So, and one of the founders of it, his name is Timothy Mitchell, Buffalo River Forge. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him or like Peter Burt. Peter, Peter Burt. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I talk with him just almost every day. You know, I'm, I'm talking to that guy, you know, he's just a fountain of knowledge. Um, but yeah, I, I learned that, you know, because when I first, like I said, when I was first, uh, reading about it and learning about it, you know, that's where I went. I went to their papers and I bought their book and I was reading that and thinking firsthand that, you know, this is what I need to do. You know, this is correct information. And once I started reaching out to other makers like Peter Burt and another, uh, maker, Nico Heinen, I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He probably makes some of the best booths on planet Earth right now. Uh, I, I suggest you go check out his uh, um, Instagram. His, his steel is crazy, man. The, the stuff he's doing. Um, not to get off track, but. Uh, no, no, for sure. I don't think that's <laughs> off track at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, they're. Um, so going back to their process is, uh, you know, in their papers. Um, so I learned early on before I didn't. So somebody like Peter Burke, okay, he says he's been making roots for like twenty something years, right? Well, he was first, um, you know, going off of their work and and their information and having so many failures, and you know, it was kind of secretive at first because, from what I understand, um, Tim Timothy Mitchell was actually an apprentice of Al Pendre. And Al showed him his true process. And, you know, he uh, told him, don't tell anybody. You know, promise me that. <laughs> uh, it's kind of an old school mentality for especially yeah, the like, blacksmithing community. No, I don't want no one to know this. You know what I mean? And, and with confidence, he kept that a secret. But now that it's wow. very well known, um, what we call above ACM forging is it's a well-known thing now. We all, everybody in the Woots community is making Woots. Who knows anything about it knows, you know, what to really do now. So, um, and so I went back, learn, knowing this information, I go back to their papers and I start to read their papers, having a better understanding of Woots on a more metallurgical scale. I'd go back and read the papers and stuff and be like, wow, man, it's really, it's really weird things that they left out, things that they didn't quite explain very well. Why did they gloss over these, you know, why did they gloss over this information? Why, why weren't they pressed by other metallurgists to not, you know, uh, come up with the info? And that a lot of that is, you know, how the, how the pattern is actually formed. Nobody really knows today. Nobody really knows what is converting that dendritic structure to a lamellar structure. It's still, it's still a mystery today. Nobody really knows. I mean, they really focused on, you know, if you read their papers, you know, they really focus on a certain pattern and, and, and they call this, you know, this is Woots, you know what I mean? And that's that more traditional Indian watered steel. They really focus on that and they don't really focus on all the other patterns that are, that you see throughout history. You know, they basically kind of really focused in on that 
and they focused in on vanadium and and how uh you know vanadium was the key factor in informing their patterns i mean it certainly was um you know a factor in their patterns but maybe not a factor in all patterns because i can tell you right now just because you have vanadium in your steel doesn't mean you get that pattern because i through my own experimentation, I can tell you right now, it doesn't just magically appear because you have that perfect amount of vanadium. Uh, yeah, they, they I, I think yeah. they didn't really. I, they glossed over it. They didn't. They didn't. It, you go. You go. Like I said, you go back and you read, and you're like, "Wow, well, how is it organizing? How is it organizing carbides into sheets? How is it doing that? I mean, even in commercial steels, they they don't know. You know, they, there's. Like I said, they, they glossed over it. Yeah, it's uh Woots is still a fairly niche product to be making. Right? There are it's still like it's like what Damascus was like twenty years ago. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, there are not many people who are very knowledgeable about it. There are not as nearly as many people making it. And I think that's partially because there isn't the same kind of ready access to information. No. And I think partially because it's also something that takes a fair bit of effort and trial and error to get right. And you've got to like, it's not like Damascus where you kind of, we've got the process figured out. If you do steps A, B, C, and D, you'll get a special forge weld. And from there, you can work on pattern development. Or yeah, and I mean, we, layer uh, most most smiths pretty much have the process figured out. It's just you know, you know, the the very uh, the the metal. Well, uh, most guys who are doing woots have got to figure it figured out. Once again, yeah. there's not as nearly so many guys doing woots. Yeah, I mean, basically, they you know they've got it figured out. We've all got it figured out. We understand you know what to do, but it's uh, it's it's there's still, uh, it's nobody really knows. Nobody knows how 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 that pattern, you know, how how the dendritic structure is converted to that lamellar structure. What's really happening there is still a mystery. But I yeah, think I was gonna a say, people, still a little bit of magic there. Well, it's like who? I, I guess it's like who cares? <laughs> Even though Verhoeven is still active in Woot's research, it's like why aren't other metallurgists? involved in it because it's who cares i mean it's not going to help us build better buildings or spaceships to well that's what i say it is still kind of a it's a niche sort of historical thing yeah you know but But i I think it's got a lot of value still yeah there's still a lot of research to do in steel but a lot of it has kind of moved in the direction of titanium and other kind of alloys you know kind of like i said there's still a research in steel but not it's not as prevalent i guess uh now. Yeah, when they're researching steel now, they're they're at the point where they're getting into super refined, you know, yeah, like let's of... make super steel that's really good at one thing, which yeah. for industry and technology is really valuable. But yeah. in the world of blacksmiths and knives and swords and tools, you know, super steels aren't really the same kind of focus i mean there are some guys out there who are really into making knives with these crazy super steels you know yeah. but 
there's a lot of us who are still messing around with, you know, like straight carbon steels or relatively basic um, tool steels, you know, and there isn't the same kind of focus on going back into that and going back into some of the forging techniques for it and going back into the history of where did we start getting this stuff? That's yeah. really the big thing about Wootz. It was the first mono steel mm-hmm. that was ever produced. The first time you could get steel to a liquid state and get it to form an actual cohesive solid substance. It's not a bloomery that's welded back together. Yep. And that's why I think it's got a certain kind of historical importance that makes me fascinated. Yeah, it's awesome, dude. I love making it. It's challenging. Uh, it's just, it's really fun. And it's kind of like a, I guess, uh, I like it also because not a lot of people are doing it. You know, yeah. I feel like everybody is making mosaic today. Everybody's making mosaic or Damascus. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's something that is different and not everybody is doing it. Right. So, Absolutely. There's another thing I like about it. Yeah. What are uh, so you've mentioned that like there's a lot of uh history that's kind of lost with some of the other regions of doing the woots and perhaps they didn't call it woots, they called it other things. It, most of us know woots to be something of the Damascus region of India or um what are what are these other places that Yeah, it was definitely, you know, mass produced in india um and other parts of the world like egypt um and i i believe russia even had their own kind of version of woot Bulat. Well. yeah the bulat pulad uh, like there's all uko there's weird name all kinds of different names uh hmm. you know but something i learned too is that they actually i can't remember where but I can't remember if it's in India or something, but they did discover a bunch of um, ingots actually, and hopefully, oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, they're all like real historical ingots, and hopefully they will be uh, releasing information on that, and hopefully they, you know, dissect the. Ing- I d- I don't know what they're going to study on. Imagine it. being the guy to cut that open. Imagine, yeah, imagine having one of them and going for it. Yeah. But that's what I heard. I, I, I heard that. Uh, and so that would be interesting to see what they find. And maybe they'll slice an ingot open and look at the solidification uh, structure. And just it's interesting. You know? Yeah, that's actually a really fascinating subject when you get back into, like, finding rare old raw materials and being able to do modern analysis on them and figure out really what they Yeah, like, they've they found like old crucibles and you know sites where they uh <clears throat> like manufacturing sites uh but to find the actual ingots is pretty impressive yeah I exactly I, maybe i'm i maybe I'm, i might be wrong here but i think it was like in someone's backyard they're just like digging up and then they found would not of, surprise me <laughs> yeah just randomly like you know oh, i'm gonna dig a hole for my tree and then oh what the heck is this What's yeah. like, isn't that how isn't that how somebody discovered uh what is it uh gobekli tepe gobekli tepe yeah so that's how you pronounce it thank you oh yeah that's that site yeah yeah they yeah, broke broke, 
broke down a wall inside the back of their house because they were going to renovate and found a tunnel behind their house and all of a sudden it freaking turns into this crazy yeah, system yeah, exactly oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way they end up finding some of this stuff sometimes is nuts like i really wish i had been uh on the podcast with uh i guess it was mike yeah mike um Palmer. Palmer, yeah uh talking about the bra- uh, copper alloys and stuff because uh a similar thing happened uh maybe about five ten years ago with with a copper alloy uh there's something called aura calcum okay it's uh a, a, a sort of it was up until that point sort of a mystery what this alloy was you hear it talked about in greek and roman literature and they ended up finding a bunch of raw ingots of it on a shipwreck in the mediterranean wow some recreational divers found this shipwreck the archaeologists came in and they're like what's this stuff (laughs) sure enough this material that we had only been able to speculate about for you know hundreds and hundreds of years we now actually know what it was wow crazy yeah this world hey i know I think that the the archaeological finds in well specifically industrial archaeology fascinating. I love it. The history oh, and development yeah. of technology is like my wheelhouse. I just love are, it so much. Are you a fan of Graham Hancock? Absolutely. Nice, nice. Yeah. I like the I like that guy's work for sure, man. I think Randall that's so Carlson. cool. Yeah, awesome man. Guys, man. So cool. Frick, I had a question that I wanted to ask. Oh. <clears throat> I was going to say in regards to the the research, you were saying, oh, I wonder what the, the, imagine being that guy that cut it open. You know what the sad part about that is? I bet you, I could be wrong, but nine times out of 10, it was probably something that didn't even give an F as to what it was that they were cutting open. It's just their job. Oh, no way. You know, one of the researchers muscled in there into the lab with the little wet saw and sliced that thing open and looked at it with wonder. You'd hope so, right? You, I really sincerely hope so. I hope I it think... wasn't done by an uh, by a grumpy intern on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> well, grumpy interns. The thing is, is I've 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 worked in research. Well, I work in research and development, yeah. right? And I've been to big research facilities, and I've seen what the work is like in these places, and what the people that work there care about and whatnot. And it's. Yeah, they they care about their job, obviously, but at the same time, it's not the same as like if they were the people that had invented that and they were putting it through the research and development, right? There, there's only so much that they care about to to a certain extent. But yeah, I, I mean, it's just a gerb. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope they're like, man, this is so cool. Well, I I get it sometimes at my job where I'd get a job where it's just like this is the coolest shit ever. I'm like so pumped and I want to make this work and. It sucks too because sometimes you get bottlenecked in in the industry when you get super excited about a job like that at a technician level because the engineer level of it just doesn't have that same love for it or maybe there's not enough money in the budget for you to really put in that effort on it and it just that's how it goes sometimes. Oh yeah, I know. That's how I feel about my yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> getting a little bit back on track here. So what what politics. does the politics. Pro- no politics yeah uh, what is your process for making uh woots look like and i mean go into yeah, as much or as little detail as you want 
<laughs> uh, well, you know, it depends. I use a very specific kind of material uh, to start out with. And I basically use something that's called electrolytic iron flake. Um, it's a very pure iron. And it, it basically, yeah, it looks like little uh, frosted flakes, you know, that they drink. And, oh, okay. That's what you're yeah. using as your base material. Yeah. And then, Electrolytic. Yep. It goes through an electrolysis okay. process to uh, clean it all out, basically. It's like 99.98% uh, pure iron. Oh, wow. How does that, how do you have to handle that as far as, uh, what's the handling process for something like rubber gloves with that stuff? Or I just keep it in a five gallon bucket. No way. I mean, I, yeah, I keep it in a five gallon bucket with a lid on it, obviously, but I don't, okay. I just scoop it out, weigh it all up. Uh, yeah, look like a drug dealer, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how, how I got all these little scales and stuff. I'm like, man, if the feds ever come in here, man, <laughs> they're gonna think something's up. My neighbors already think I'm making meth in my backyard. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know methamphetamine required such a big fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, what do you, what do people know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I mean, anyways, uh, well, I grew up in the hood, basically, so. You know, my my thinking is a lot different than some of my. Neighbors. I didn't know Alaska had a hood. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, but yeah, I use I use electrolytic iron flake, and then I also use for my carburizer something that's called uh sorrel metal, or also known as pig iron. And right. okay, cast iron, white cast iron. It's very yep. pure, clean cast iron. Four point two five percent carbon. And I can't think of the grade. It's like grade RF10, I believe, is the grade of it. And it's very, very pure and clean, man. So the, 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 it doesn't need to be so much focus on purity, but, you know, it's best to start with pure material, especially. Like, yeah, it helps to eliminate variables as you're trying to get it yeah, right. I mean, especially if you're trying to make a chemistry that's more closer to historical roots. You know, those yeah. two materials right there are going to give you a chemistry that's very close to the, the real deal. Um, hmm. You know, sorrel metal actually contains uh, the right amount of vanadium that would be pretty uh, in par with uh, historical levels, like 0.004%. I've had a lot of my steel analyzed, too, so I've seen what has come, what's actually in it. Um, but the thing about sorrel metals, it's hard to get. Yeah, I was going to actually ask that. Like, how are you sourcing the materials for I, this? I can't, you know, not to be secretive, but the people I get it from have asked me to, you know, they want to remain anonymous. So, Hey, fair enough. No, for uh, sure. It makes sense to me, don't man. Want, they don't want people, you know, bugging them and, and blowing them up. So uh, you know, I got a whole lineup of hosers that. after this show if you gave out the names. Yeah, I mean, the electrolytic iron you can get very easily. You can buy that stuff off of eBay. Okay. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, that stuff's very easy to get. But you the the soro metal you were saying it's kind of like pig iron, right? It is pig iron. Yep. But it's got vanadium in it. Is that normal to pig iron? Yes. Yep. Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Because you pig iron was like on the scale of where we are in metal production in the world. Pig iron was where they were producing metal before wrought iron, right? Uh, mm, I, no, no. Yeah. So go ahead. 
correct me, but I don't know. Cast iron. It's just yeah. a cast iron. It's used in foundry work, like ductile, like ductile iron. Um, yeah. Okay. So you know, they, they started making pig iron after they developed the blast furnace, which would have been around the Tudor period, the very end of the medieval period kind of thing. And I don't know. Yeah. And later on, uh, they started using it as their base material for doing casting, any and all casting. It was just like a raw material. And initially, pig iron was of extremely variable quality, depending on where it came from and how it was processed, what the ore they were mining was. Right. And it was only later that they started developing the processes needed to to get pig iron um, to a point where it was a consistent product. And pig iron is still produced today. Okay, right? so, but well, obviously he's buying it. Yeah, like it's still produced <laughs> en masse. It's still like anytime you're looking at like casting furnaces, even when they go and recycle steel a lot of times, they'll be recycling it back into pigs to be used out of foundry. To... I was, yeah, I was just going to say they call it pig iron because it looks like little pigs, you know? Right, like yeah. Like yeah. a little okay. baby pig. But, okay, so in the history of the development of steel, was there not something that either, like, you, it, it's what pig iron used to be and they added something to the development to create pig iron or pig iron became the next thing Big iron was used uh, when they s- developed the puddling process to help create larger volumes of wrought iron. Okay. Yes. That's, see, that's what I, there's the connection that I was looking at. Pig iron that's, to wrought iron. That's what I understand. Okay. But, yeah. I knew I've read about that somewhere before, but my brain sucks and I'd ha- I have a terrible habit of retaining information. <laughs> yeah. Once they developed the reverberatory furnace or the puddling process... They used pig iron as the raw material to decarburize to make wrought iron that they would then run through rolling mills or under big power hammers to make these large quantities of iron that they needed for the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Crazy, crazy. Very cool. Um, well, yeah, pig iron is, is, the, is the carburizer. For, so that's what um, you're using as your carbon source, the carbon that is in the pig iron. You're not adding an external carbon source. Nope. Nope. Really? You, okay. use, you can you don't have to use that. In my opinion, it's you're gonna have better success using sorrel metal. Well, yeah, it's understandable because you've already got iron uh, iron with carbon in solution. Yeah. So right, you're starting off with that. You're not trying to dissolve well, the carbon melt, in there. It, it will be liquid before your iron is even you know right because the exactly because the increase in carbon content causes the the uh melting yep. temperature of the iron to drop i think and i think it also helps speed up your melting uh or it speeds up the melting process because that makes sense the, you yep. know once your iron is up to temperature it starts at the right temperature it's going to start you know picking up carbon very quickly <laughs> what are you what are you no. chuckling about the the argument that somebody had on blacksmithing for beginners, I think it was not that long ago, about your forge 
is what heats your steel, not your source of fuel. What a pedantic argument to have, right? Oh, yeah. And it went, and it went on and on. I just like, okay, yes, arguably in a propane forge, the propane heats the inside of the forge, and it's the radiant heat that should be at least in concept, you know, heating Absolutely. the steel. But a solid fuel forges exist, and b. <laughs> The propane is what's making the damn thing hot in the first place. Right. Like, right. Who cares? <laughs> so the reason, but okay, so where my brain is on on that is that the, the melting processes of the two things, it's the, the propane is what heats the forge up, but in the concept of melting the woots, the, the high heat of the high carbon is what's helping melt the other stuff as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're also getting more full contact with, from the already molten. Yes. uh, Pig iron. It's Mm -hmm. increasing the um, conductivity into the iron. That's still solid, but yeah. 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 And and, and I guess we can back up some too, because you know, I do use a certain crucible too. do not use cheap. I try to tell people, do not use the cheap crucibles you find on Amazon. Don't. Okay. eBay. If it's not a salamander super crucible, you ain't going to melt iron in it, man. Like, I, you, you, okay. you can, because I've done it before. Not pure iron, but when I was first making this stuff, when I was first making crucible steel, I was uh, using 1018 and graphite powder, and I was using those cheap crucibles. And my ingots were the ugliest looking things I've ever seen in my life. They were so porous because those cheap crucibles, they get really porous at melting temp. When you're at, you know, 2,900 degrees, which is 1,600 degrees Celsius, those crucibles, they they just, they're not designed to that. They're only designed to melt non-ferrous metal. They're designed to melt your copper. Right. They're not designed to melt iron, man. Okay. So I use- I'm going to be needing you to send me some links later. <laughs> Yeah, I use uh, their clay graphite crucibles, and that's what I would recommend using is clay graphite and salamander super crucibles. Man, I can't stress that enough. I've seen firsthand what the cheap crucibles can do. And if you're starting with with, with uh, uh, you know pure iron, that that's not good. Those cheap crucibles, stay away from them. See, okay, this this is something I I've been I think about this all the time, man. My knife my knife journey at this there's a guy that follows us on on instagram and that's his, his thing is called his my knife journey he's freaking he he's in love with our show by the way but oh, um, my, shout out my, to you man right <laughs> <laughs> my knife journey my personal knife journey i'm not i've been like well oh, i'm not a knife maker i'm holding off i don't do the oh, knife come on you're a bladesmith I'm, now apparently i'm a bladesmith <laughs> now <laughs> you sold a knife you're a bladesmith but fuck, now I forget where I was going with this. Shit. Uh, Cheap materials. Die on the knife journey. If if you are if you're into making knives, what you should do is go to Maritime Knife Supply because they carry all your knife making supplies, and you can get belts by ten, save ten percent. Use the code FSC Kiln, save a hundred dollars on Paragon or even Heat Kilns. Get everything and. Anything you need for your knife making supplies at maritime knife supply.ca. 
and no janky shit. Right. <laughs> Only high quality stuff on my time knife supply. Yeah, Lawrence is awesome, man. I'm, I'm, I want to be, uh, want to purchase a uh, Rockwell tester from him. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be for doing your your steel development and getting your heat treat sorted, yeah, which I it. want to ask you lots of questions about afterwards. Which I'm yeah. sure we're going to get into heat treat, but oh, yeah. I, I can imagine that that would be really, really helpful and useful. Oh yeah, and just for knives, period, man. Yeah, I I remember I was going now. The reason that I have not been, I've been hesitant about making knives. This is exactly what we're talking about now. How you're telling people don't use the treat the cheap crucible you will regret it there's a reason why i haven't jumped into knives because i'm learning i've learned so much already by doing these what were we episode 70 right now i think this is episode 70 dude oh wow 70 episodes of knowledge that's like wow hours wow 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 (laughs) it sounds like a lynx in my backyard man (laughs) settle down over there woman <laughs> uh was that wrong <laughs> well it's it's interesting you say that because you know i never when i started forging i never wanted to make knives i like i was like i'm not into making knives i want to make tooling hammers axes right. like knives i don't want nothing to do with no knives now look right at me. <laughs> i mean I, I look at me, man what the hell? I'm I'm the weird opposite guy. I started out wanting to do knives and made a few and realized, you know, it's fun and all, but I had this kind of weird specialized knowledge when it came to woodworking and woodworking tools, so I flipped instead to making woodworking tools. Yep, I wanted to forge tooling for my job, like punches and hammers and chisels and stuff. Oh yeah. That's well, that's just a good thing to be able to do to forge your own tooling for what mm. you want to do. It saves you a bunch of money and it's a lot of fun. I make all my punches for work, chiselings, you know, stuff to drive out pins. Like I, all of my own tooling, man. I work with other mechanics and I'm like, dude, where did you get this? Now I'm like, I forged it, bro, from a, you know, a coal spring or something. Damn. Yeah, buddy. That's and so they're just awesome. in awe of the size of your testicles. oh boy well played man nice oh man (laughs) okay so what is the um the process for actually turning these raw materials that you've stuck into a crucible into woots look like because i know not everybody has got a handle on there's, I mean, all of it's a process. It's not just there's one little thing. I mean, it's a whole process from the moment that you load your charge into your crucible to when you etch your blade. Like, it's all part of the process. It's not just one thing. So it's very important to start with, you know, the material you're going to use. Um, and the purer the material, you know, is the lower carbide forming elements which are like you know vanadium um, anything that's left of um, iron on the uh, periodic table of elements um, you know strong carbide forming elements vanadium niobium titanium chromium molybdenum manganese you know um, (laughs) those are your carbide forming elements Um, phosphorus 
but uh so the 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 purer the material is, the lower the carbide forming elements. Basically, the harder it is to get a pattern, but the more, the better pattern that you can possibly achieve. If that makes sense. So, um, yeah, if the higher the carbide forming elements in your steel, it pretty much locks that dendritic structure, um, and it doesn't. You don't get that really lamellar structure in the end because those carbide forming elements. Yeah, they you know they soak up your carbon. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to uh, higher um, you know CFE levels, uh, but we we'll get into all that. But so the purer the material, the harder it is to get the pattern, but um, uh, the, the better pattern you can get. You get that okay. more water lamellar structure. Okay, right. So that's why I use those materials, and that's more in my opinion. That's more closer to uh, just using the iron, the electrolytic iron and sorrel uh, is going to give you a chemistry that's closer to the real thing minus uh, phosphorus. Um, so uh, next step is to load the crucible properly, depending on what kind of what your carbon source is, what your carburizer is. So in my case, the sorrel that always goes on top of the iron. Okay. Um, Makes sense, right? And, and I've actually experimented with using higher alloys in my steel. and It changes everything. Like I, I have a lot of ferro alloys and you, you've got to use them in ferro form. You can't use pure alloys. I'm not saying that possibly a little bit won't go into solution, but most of the time, if you were to use pure alloys in their pure form, they'll just oxidize and they won't go into solution. They'll just float up into the slag. So, All right, so you're not like sitting there pixie dusting in little tiny bits of pure vanadium or little tiny bits of pure manganese. Yeah, no, 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 ferro. It's got to be in ferro yeah. form. I don't, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's no, what it is. Where it's already been absorbed into the iron matrix and yeah. it's starting to form carbide to right. take up the place of carbon yes, okay. atoms in the lattice. Yep. And they'll, they'll completely dissolve and go into solution and become, you know, segregated into steel. So... Nick, if um, I could have babies, I'd be willing to. Just yes, that. I know. I, I'm the guy who's here basically to like try to like explain like I'm five for some of this stuff. It's uh, like I, I I know that this is a thing that happens whenever we get into the metallurgy, right? Like it's very easy to get to the point where you're doing nothing but talking shop. Like yeah. you're you start using all the jargon, and uh, I think a lot of our listeners would just be like, "What the." fuck are they talking about it's a good, it's a good thing you've got so i i try my best to like do the explain like i'm five well and i need to pull it out of you every once in a while bud too right now now yeah. that i do have guys like your bird and timothy mitchell man that's how i'm like i am i'm just like dude you guys break it down so i can understand i have to read their their articles like five times over and then I'm like, well, what is that? And then I got to go to Google and, and type this in. What does that mean? Oh, okay. That's what that is. And I got to read it like <laughs> five to 10 times to understand it, man. Mm-hmm. I only absorb like 20% of it. Like, <laughs> man, you guys are brilliant. <laughs> you guys oh, make me Some of these guys are real smart. I remember yeah. I actually did some of my like really fundamental reading on metallurgy when I was recovering from a surgery. So I was like, uh, I was like painkillered out of my mind 
and I was sitting there and I'd like read a page and be like, what the hell did I just read and go back and read it again? It's like seven, eight times at the same page. Luckily I had like two months to recover. It's it's been incredibly difficult for me to uh, grasp, you know, because you can't see, you can't see what people are talking about most of the time. You know, you you can't really see it kind of like the, you know, like troubleshooting electricity. You can't really see electricity. Mm -hmm. I have a better understanding. You can see the components and everything, you know, you you can see that on a machine. But when we're talking about carbides and carbide forming elements and you can't see these, you know, people have drawings and you can see some uh, uh, micrographs and things. But for me, that's been harder for me to understand because I can't see it, you know. Yeah, I think this is, again, why a lot of people, uh, like, haven't jumped into doing Woots. Like, Damascus, you can see it. It's a relatively simple process to understand. Not necessarily an easy process to do. I I guess one thing I could be, one thing I want to be be clear on, too, is it's kind of like, you know, when you're heat treating a blade. You don't really need to, someone hands you 1084 and says, you know, austenize this at 1480. And maybe soak it for five minutes, you know, or you read that, right? You're like, okay, and you go and do it. You don't really need to know what's going on. You don't need to know, you know, the iron carbon phase diagram and, you know, what's A1 and what's critical. You know, you don't need to know any of that, you know, and you and, and someone could literally just give you a process to do with woots. Like I could hand someone an ingot or that has a kiln and tell them do this, 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 and this without knowing any of the metallurgy, and you could still have success. You know, um, if, there are some factors there, but I myself want to know, you know, the metallurgy behind it. I want to know the science behind it. Makes two of us, man. Some people don't, and that's okay. You know, a lot of guys make knives and don't want to know the metallurgy behind heat treating a knife. Or they send them out for somebody else to do them. You know, there's nothing blows, wrong with that. There's no, nothing wrong with that. Different, I don't know, man. It blows me away. It blows me away that people are like that, man. It's like, you how know can what? you not care about hey, that, though? Look, for guys who are, do, especially guys who do stock removal, why would they even bother? They don't have to have a heat source. You could yeah, do it in your basement and then ship it out to a heat treater. Especially like guys I, who do stainless. For the benefit yeah. of being able to explain it to your customers. Yes, I, I think that a certain amount of knowledge is good for that. I want to have my hands on everything. I don't. Yeah, buy, me too. You know, I don't. I don't buy billets already made of the mat. I don't. I don't do any of that. I make everything myself. I just feel like it's more organic and raw. You know. Yeah, man. Well, Later I, I, on, I'm going to be asking you if you sell billets because I might want one. <laughs> what about what about trying to making pig iron? That's actually oh, bad. They do that. That would yep. be a challenge, but very doable. It's yep. mostly a challenge. Like, <laughs> you've got to imagine the kind of heats you've got to get up to and the kind of size you need to have anything that resembles a reasonable amount of production. Like, it's a pretty industrial process. You, you need to either be doing it on a very small scale or you need to be doing it, like, you need to have a good-sized chunk of property in a building dedicated to it. Yeah, well, uh, my, my mom says I'm handsome, and they definitely aren't making 12 inch rulers any longer. So, <laughs> wah, 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 wah. 
Okay, yeah, so uh, crucible, materials in the crucible, the uh, sorrel metal goes on top. And then, you know, if you were to use like graphite powder, which I don't recommend using graphite powder, um, all my uh, um, uh, steel that I had sent out, uh, all my analysis came back very low in carbon, man. Like what I shot for came back very low, like 1.2%. Um, carbon, because, yeah, because the graphite, because powder will uh, tends to float up into the slag, you know, before uh, it, it really starts to carburize the iron. So, if you're going to use graphite, I I tell guys that ask me about it, I I recommend they use, and I've been recommended this too uh, when I was using graphite, is to use like graphite chips, like a, like a chunk of it, break off a, a chunk and use that. And you can use charcoal too. I was going to say lump charcoal is something else that was historically they were, used. That's what they were doing a long time ago. Yeah. You know, um, historically they used charcoal. They used like uh, tree bone. bark, crushed uh, bone, organic right? material like pomegranate. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, a little bit different, but they were just talking similar shit on uh, the Forge cast with Marcus McCoy from Troll Cutting Forge about how old school case hardening was done with crushed bone yeah burned bone because the the high carbon content it right yeah yeah as That's well as it. some of the other elements that are in burned bone oh yeah, yeah. interesting Lost so i was just with oh interesting 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 <laughs> okay so the shit nick knows <laughs> Yeah, you're fucking weird, dude. I am. I love that so fucking much, though, man. All right. So, do you put glass in the top of the crucible? Yep. Yep. Uh, what function does that serve? It's it basically protects the charge from oxidation. Yeah. So, and you got to use green glass. Uh, green glass doesn't contain um, the iron sulfate compounds that you find in like ground glass. And sulfur is something you don't want in your steel. Nope, you get hot shorts. Last, yes, the last yeah. guy in the uh, your last episode, um, you know, he brought that up. He's talking about hot shorts. So that's why yeah. don't want that. Um, that's why I always use green glass. Okay, cool. Helps that. Uh, you know, we're friends with a uh, guy who owns a local bar here, so <laughs> I get plenty, <laughs> plenty of Jameson bottles. Man, Jameson works great. Nice. Heineken, you get Heineken. a little little bit of residual flavor in there, too. Yeah, dude, I'm like, man, making Lutz has turned me into an alcoholic, dude. <laughs> so, so much whiskey. I thought it was just blacksmithing that did that to you. No, well, it I doesn't actually, help. doesn't help. I don't drink, so I'm oh, swearing. Yeah. Good for you, buddy. Good for you. <laughs> Wise I, choices. I to, yeah, I tried to jump on the uh, no drinking train there in the summertime and I didn't, I didn't drink for like a couple months. And then I just, I, I enjoy a couple beers in the shop, man. It's it. I can't deny it. I, I'm not a heavy drinker, but at the same time, it's, it's interesting. I just listened to something about this today, about somebody who was talking about how they didn't think they were a heavy drinker either. Then they started talking to other people around them that really weren't heavy drinkers at all like barely drank and he's like well shit maybe i do drink a lot i'm just used to the fact that like 
for a long time, I had an alcoholic like roommate and I would come home and find him like butt naked in my bed and just be like, well, this again, eh? And I just, you know, kind of grew normal to that. And I thought that's what being an alcoholic was. Turns out I'm almost an alcoholic. (laughs) Alcoholism is kind of a, it can be pretty bad here in Alaska. Oh, I can imagine. Take care of yourself, people. I'm from Flin Flon. Uh, It's up north, uh, very up north in uh, Manitoba. It's a mining community, dude. Alcoholism is a strong thing up there, dude. Every mechanic I work with is an alcoholic, dude. Mm -hmm. I did 14 years in the Army. I've met my fair share, too. (laughs) My family family owned the bar, dude. The, the 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 main bar that most of the alcoholics I, like my dad was notorious and my grandpa was notorious for having to break out fights in front of the building and shit always drunk people lying on the sidewalk out front and yeah good times good times i grew up around that stuff that's what i got to that was my my scene yeah well right. that explains a lot lando yeah, stacking stacking beer in the vendor that was oh, good yeah. times my dad when i my dad was a uh uh, he's a retired truck driver, and he used to drive for a Budweiser up here, a local fucking outfit, K&L. And I remember packing up cases of beer, and he would come up the ramp, scoop them up, bring them down to the liquor store. And then I would, I got to learn how to read the invoices, you know, and I'd be like, okay, I need this case of beer, this case of beer, two of these. <laughs> That's and then awesome, I'd, I'd help him out, you know, so we could go fishing or something and have time to go, you know, go fish when he was done with his deliveries, so. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. Good memories right there, eh? Oh, yeah. All right. So, once again, driving us back on track here. We've got the green glass. <laughs> okay, I'll get to one subject, and then we'll jump over here. Oh, dude. That's okay. That's why I'm here. I'm just the keep everything on track guy. <laughs> that yeah, and the dick jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, we've got our green glass at the top of the crucible. Do you put a lid on it? Like a seal, uh, like no, a lid with a seal, or you just leave it at like that? Well, you can. Um, so you can have very successful melts uh, doing an um, open melt you know, with, with no no lid. And that's how I've done everything so far, you know. And I, I, I will eventually um, start using a lid. I actually have one cruise because I've, I've, I've been changing my um, size of the ingots I've been making so frequently and using a bigger crucible that I've got to a point to where an A5 crucible, which um, can get you a pretty large ingot in my opinion. Um, that's where I've stopped. That's big enough for my furnace. I'm happy with that. It gets me plenty of steel. I can handle it on the on my press. And so uh, that's where I'm staying. And I have one crucible. It's probably got one more uh, melt left in it. And I'll be sawing the bottom off of that and then using that for the lid. So using a lid, basically using a lid uh, gives you cleaner steel, really, in the end. Um, okay, yeah, it makes sense. You don't, you don't have um, the carbon loss, you know, because you will lose carbon um, from an open melt. You, you can lose carbon from an open melt. Yeah, and you'll also, start heating uh, it up, and it'll convert into CO2 when you get the oxygen in with it. Yeah, and you can also pick up carbon from the crucible as well. So those are, that's why I always... Uh, I always shoot for 1.6% carbon. Um, just I go, you know, 1.5 is a, a good range. Um, but I always go 1.6 just in case I lose some. Yeah. You know, from, that... from the melt, from roasting, from, from you know, other processes. 
So that's why I go a little higher than normal. But a lot of my mm-hmm. skill that comes back is pretty right in, you know, bam, 1.5%. Um, Are you? Uh... Yeah, that's a notably high percentage of carbon for what you're normally looking at when it comes to tool steels, right? Because most yeah, tool I... steels float around 1% or even yeah, a little bit under. Yeah, Woos mm-hmm. was historically about 1.3 to 1.8% carbon. Right. Are... How do you find out what kind of carbon content you have? I send it off. Same people that give me my, my, my sorrel metal analyze my steel for me. Okay. I was wondering about that, if there's a way that just like any regular Joe can go about getting something analyzed for carbon content. Is that, yeah, I, that like, that? Any, is that like something like a, a specific lab has to do or? Uh, anybody that has a spectrometer. And, and to analyze your steel for you. Uh, I thought the spectrometer doesn't do carbon, though. Oh, yeah. Yep. It'll do carbon content. Yep. Hmm. Okay. I took something in for uh, spectrophity before, and uh, they, if, I was told it was 5160, and the readout came back not 5160 at all. And uh, But at the same time, they couldn't give me a carbon content on it, and I asked them about it, and they said that they're their their process doesn't give a carbon readout. Hmm. I would assume that's probably just the individual setups. Yeah, I think so. Even even some spectrometers, from what I understand, I'm not I'm not an expert when it comes to this. I'm not an expert in anything, but um, from what I understand, even some spectrometers aren't set up to even test some alloys in the steel. As I was told that, like when I was adding uh, niobium to my steel, they told me that oh. I, they were like, I don't know that we can test for niobium, but they ended up that they could. So, oh, cool. you know, different. Um, but yeah. Where's so, Malachi? He'd be able to tell us all this stuff. <laughs> was that the guy in the last episode? Yeah. Yeah. Good Super episode, nice. man. That was really interesting to hear that guy talk, man. I, that was good, man. Yeah, he's smart, eh? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's good. That, that was a good episode. Thanks, buddy. Um, I get the feeling that this one will probably will be too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm, and also, you know, I'm not the greatest uh, person at explaining things, man. I'm horrible at explaining things, you know, like as a heavy equipment mechanic, you know, we work with apprentices, man. And I, I'll try, I'll be trying to explain to them how to like tear something down or, and I'm just like, dude, just, I, they're looking at me all crazy, you know? And I'm like, just go away. I'll go do it. dude. You know, it's like, mm. I can't, you know, it's all, it's like in here and it's just, I'm not, a, I'm not a good teacher, man. <laughs> I'm not. That's all right, dude. We'll, we'll just ask pointed questions to see if we can get the information out of you. Yes and um, no questions. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be fine. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know. It seems like you're really passionate about it. So you, you kind of are a good talker when yeah, it comes so to So far, it's so good, I, dude. I love it, man. I love it. Uh, but, okay, so, and, and then my furnace, okay? So I converted. Wait, oh. So, Oh, 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 tell us about your tool. Yeah. I bought a, so, you know, even though I'm a firm believer in making everything, you know, sometimes when I'm working, I just buy things because I don't want to spend my time making like a tool or building a furnace because I want to spend my time making something. Oh yeah. It's always a balance of that stuff. 
yeah, I've had, uh, you know, uh, guys, you know, there's only one person that I like that I let to make my tooling for me. And that's, I don't know if you ever heard of Wahlberg Forge. Awesome dude, man. No, off the top uh, of my head, but I'll give him a look up. Yeah, he makes a lot of tooling. You know, he'll make hammers, axes, and stuff. But he makes guys for the Cole Ironworks 12-ton press. Oh, cool. Super affordable price, man. And I've had him make a lot of stuff for me because I, I want to get off of work. And I want to jump into making something, not make a bunch of tooling, you know. So, again, I went ahead and bought a furnace. The uh, Devil's Forge furnace is what I bought. And initially, I bought that to just melt uh, brass, uh, you know. And, and right. I don't know. Some guys might know what I'm talking about, but some don't on road graders. You know, like we call them blades. You know what a road yep. grader is? I'm sure. Yeah. So, in the blade, they have brass bushings in there that the blade rides on. So oh, okay. On a rail, and they, you know, they they wear out over time. And when we change them, I keep that old brass. I got buckets of it. So in, initially, I was saving that brass to melt down. That's why I bought that uh, Devil's Forge furnace was just because, you know, cool. I'll I'll make some, uh, you know, uh, uh, bars to make knife guards or something out of. You know, right. Do something yeah. With, yeah. Do something with this brass I got. So, um, and then I got into the whole woods thing. So. I ended up converting my and the Devil's Forge furnace. Uh, you know, off the top of my, it's the larger unit. They make a really okay. small one, make a larger one, and that just by itself will get hot enough to melt iron. Believe okay. it or not, even even with the Venturi burner that comes with it, really you can have some. Yes, yes, you, I've done wow. it. I used it. Yeah, I've used it. And another guy down in Australia, uh, I've watched. He's got a few YouTube videos. Um, where he was using the same exact setup with the Venturi burner that came with it and was making ingots, man. Pretty, uh, um, pretty interesting. So yeah, I was using that at first, but now I have modified my furnace. Um, and there's a lot to kind of go into on, on furnaces for, uh, you know, melting iron for making boots. Um, but what works for me is, the, you know, like I said, the Devil's Forge furnace, but I've modified it slightly and I don't use, I use a very skim coat of Castellite 30. Okay. okay because, I mean, <clears throat> it can be kind of hard. Your average forge setup, I don't think can reach these temperatures, man. Not typically. I mean, like, I, I, I haven't topped out my forge yet because I'm scared to, but... Yeah. <laughs> I, I hit 2450 and like, I was like, okay, this is probably good enough for now. I know it gets hot enough to forge weld, but it was still rising at that point. Yeah. So I'm using a forced air burner that I, that I yep. made myself and it's the same burner I use in my forge. Um, I do have a couple, I, you know, I have a couple forges. I got one portable one, a little Venturi burner, portable forge. Uh, I have a propane tank and I've made them all. Um, I do have a large ribbon burner forge, like massive, which is really overkill. And yeah, mine too. Little, yeah, I have a little propane tank. Uh, I converted into a forge with the same burner that that I use in my furnace to melt, um, to make woots in. So right on. So the furnaces that you're using to melt, that is that a ribbon burner as well, or is it a tube burner? Nope, it's just a. It's just a one single burner. Uh, um. Single burner, forced air. Uh, yeah, forced air tube burner. burner. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I've ex I have YouTube videos explaining it. I mean, you can go to my YouTube and oh, what's oh. your YouTube? I, 
just it's a very simple design, man. Yeah, yeah we'll have to get a YouTube link channel. for that to add to the post. Yeah, yeah I'm, your YouTube I'm, channel. I'm, I'm, I'm totally uh, it's heavy for heavy underscore forge. Ah, um, but I uh, I'm convinced that thing will go over three thousand degrees Fahrenheit for sure. It it just nice. it gets, it, yeah, it, you know, and it it gets to twenty nine hundred degrees for for you guys sixteen hundred C no problem. Yeah, no. I know we're supposed to use Celsius here, but for <laughs> for all of America, the, like, basically, <laughs> basically we use Celsius for the temperature outside, but whenever we're doing something with temperature, it's almost always Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah a lot of that is because of American reference material and you know like yeah. American appliances and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, yeah uh, we're pretty comfortable using Fahrenheit for everything that doesn't involve what it's like outside like tinnitus most of the uh roots guys use celsius too so i'm just like yeah they're all europeans i gotta convert everything <laughs> convert it back into freedom height yeah yeah there's actually got these guys they're from all over the world man you know australia u.s obviously um there's a guy in i think he's french maybe I mean, these guys are all turkey. Dude's all over, man. How? Okay. What about on the the India scale? You got because like you got this whole reputation of the the Pacmascus and all of that stuff. But there's got to be guys that know what the fuck they're doing out of those regions too. That are doing the right things. Yeah, absolutely. Roots was never lost. It just was stopped being mass produced. You had guys in India who, from what I understand, were just Smiths still making it. You know, nobody just they weren't. They're still making it, and you know, like we forge in our backyards. They're making it in their backyards. You know? Yeah, I would assume in some of the more rural parts of India. Like, why would it have never stopped, really? Right? It was never really lost. Like we lost the technology. Know, maybe yeah. all, you know, a bunch of white folks lost technology, but those guys, they knew what they were doing still. They just weren't, they lived in a hut, dude. Like, you know, no offense, I, you know, I don't really know, but it's like they lived in a rural part of India somewhere where there was no focus on what they were doing. I think it was you know, not exactly a whole lot of high-speed internet access. But certainly not Damascus at the beginning of the century. Uh, Damascus is in Syria, I think, actually. Yeah, it is. Yes, now, the naming convention comes from the fact that Europeans first knew about it, first really saw this type of steel during the Crusades, henceforth Damascus. Damascus was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. It was like the trade center, right? Yes. Yeah. And but, that's and they, where and the name Damascus comes from. And through history, they figure that that or originated quite south of Damascus, actually, right? Well, that was one source of it. Sorry. I mean, it was used from all over. It wasn't just like that was the ore that they used. And that was yeah. the only ore you could use to make root metal. That's, that's ah, yeah. see, that's a mythology behind it, right? Yeah, like the whole okay. Canadian. Like, there was ore used from all over that had all kinds of different alloys in it, man. I mean, well, it wasn't well. just... 
know, but like I said, Verhoeven and Pendry really focused on that that Indian steel, man. They were really focused on that and and really nothing else. You know, there was boots with all kinds of different patterns. You know, why aren't we talking about that? But, you know, yeah, it's not just one thing; it's a process. Yeah. It's a process that can yield lots of different results depending on what you put in and what you do. Yep. I noticed through some of your is either Instagram or Facebook uh, face little Facebook work that you have a microscope to inspect your work. Yeah, to look at the ingot structures, yeah. Is how how fine of a microscope do you have to use for that? What level? Uh, that's that's a good question. Um so, well, I'm using an Amscope, which I think has uh, one, it's 1050 times. One th- okay. You don't need that long of a microscope, really. You can see your, you, okay, so I bought my microscope for personal reasons, just because uh, the, the nerdiness of it. I really wanted to get a closer <laughs> look of it. And when I had a little microscope before, I have a little uh, handheld one, because you okay. can clearly see the structure of your ingot when you put, I'll get into why I do this too. But when you etch your little window and you grind a corner off of the ingot and, and uh, etch a little window like, like that. Right. Okay. You can clearly see your structure. You, you can see it. Perfect. How fine? Like How with fine the naked eye? Or? Yeah. With the naked eye. Oh yeah. Oh, How cool. fine do you have to, to grind it to, to get that? About, I'd say about 220 grit, you can start seeing it. Okay. Oh, wow. So it's really quite coarse in the grand scheme of things. Oh, yeah. The grain structure is huge in the ingot. Massive. Oh, <laughs> massive. But my daughter, I was showing my daughter one day, and she just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I was like, you sure. know, maybe in the future, you know, we can look at other cool things. So I invested in a microscope, and now, you know, I'll, I'll, she's totally into it, man. Love oh, it's awesome, dude. <laughs> Mommy, Let's go Daddy. get some pond water and see what's in it. <laughs> yeah, my, my daughter's like, my daughter's like, mommy, daddy's downstairs looking at his rocks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got I got that Amscope, um, and it's I got a camera on it too. Cool. So I can take a digital image of it, and you awesome. don't really need that. Yeah, like I said, you don't need anything like that. But um, I got it because I can see perlite. And I, I wanted to see what perlite looked like, you know, and you, you can clearly see it with, you, you need the highest magnification to, to see it on my microscope. Yeah, I'd say that's but, a pretty fine structure. Yeah, so I can, you know, I can clearly see uh, perlite, which I think is awesome. But, that's, yeah, that's very cool, dude. That, yeah, cause, I mean, most of us have only yeah. ever seen pictures of it, if that. Yeah, yeah, if that, yes, exactly. I mean, it's not a, you know, scanning electron microscope but i've seen images of electron microscope of a you know roots ingot and it's um which i'll get into that here shortly but uh i I can see the same exact structure uh in my ingots that i've seen online you know so Hmm. it's it's just pretty interesting yeah absolutely yeah well so if we get back to our Sorry. Making boots is a full process, man, and I I can't stress that enough, man. I don't. It's not like I said. It's not just one thing. It's the whole process. But yeah. when you ask me, what's your process? It's like you got to start at the beginning, man. Yep. You, you, it's like I said. It's materials, 
melting, roasting, forging. So, so that's got um, to where I was trying to steer us back to a little bit. We've gotten our, our charge and loaded it into our crucible. We added our glass on top. You stick it into your preheated furnace. You start no. with the furnace cold or? No, 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 no. Never, uh, never do that. Um, I know some people do. I've heard that you can, but I, I don't, I wouldn't do it with sorrel metal because the stuff will explode. Sorrel will explode if you put it into like a hot forge without, uh, you know, heating it up first. If you stick sorrel metal into a hot forge, it'll boom, start to blow up. Stuff's kind of dangerous, man. Yeah, That's it's really thing. porous. It's extremely hard. You will not cut it with a saw. You can't cut it with a saw. I ran the stuff over with a D10 dozer, bro. It didn't break at all. You know, it, it's incredibly tough stuff, but the way you break it apart is um, heat it up to like a red color and then quench it in water. And that'll create enough fractures in it that you can just beat it with a hammer, you know, put it like in a towel and then just beat it with a hammer and it'll break apart into little pieces that you can, that you can use. What's yeah, you're relying on the mechanical tension that's already in it. What's yeah. it spark powder like? It's pretty bursty. I was going to say, it would probably be really short, really bursty, and really white. Yeah, it's 4.25% carbon. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, then you got to have a furnace that can get to melting temps, man. And I would say you you need at least 2,700 degrees. You could probably get away at 2,650, but 2,700 is where you need to be. So, But you'll have a longer melt time. Yeah. And you don't want to go... Do you ramp up to that? Like how like how quickly are you getting up to temp? So, so I load up my crucible, stick it in my furnace, fire it up, put the lid on, and I have an S-type thermocouple, right, with a meter. So you need a thermocouple. I think uh, the reason why you want to have a thermocouple so you don't overshoot your temperatures, when you start to get higher than 1,600 degrees C, then you start to – too high of melting temps can start to get, uh, I think it's silicone dioxide I've heard mentioned before uh, from the glass that can enter your steel. So that's oh, why yeah. it's important to keep, because uh, essentially glass is just silicone. So um, yeah. you can also get lots of not. bubbles. Oh, yeah. So you get lots of uh, bubbles in your ingot, which is not good. Yeah, there's a lot of carbon, uh, a lot of gases uh, that need to escape the charge. But the higher the melting temp you can reach, so if you can get to 1600 C and hold that there for uh, maybe 45 minutes, that's efficient. I melt for one and a half hours. That's it. 1.5 hours is my melt times because I get to 1600 C very quickly and I hold it there and I let it go. My, and then I just, you know, I just put my stopwatch on hour and a half. And I fire up my furnace because I, it takes me like 30 minutes to get to melting temp. And then I just kind of maybe 35 minutes and then I just let it go until I don't see any more reactions and bubbles and stuff inside the uh, crucible, which is one another reason why I haven't done any closed melts yet. Any sealed melts is because I want to make sure because I, like I said, I've been going from such larger ingots so quickly. Um, that I've, I've been able to, I've been wanting to see what's happening and I know, okay, I'm fully confident that I can make a 2,200 gram ingot 
in one and a half hours with, you know, in my furnace, I'm confident with that. So now it's time to start sealing my charges. Right on, man. So, Fucking gnarly. You're, so you're yeah. getting right about a kilogram of steel. For... Yeah, yeah. Like I, I went from making, you know, small ingots, you know, to larger ingots. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So like one, he's holding them up to the camera here. One's about the size that would like. This is uh, like a thousand gram and this is 2200 grams. Yeah, so what yeah, would you kilo. what would you compare the the small ones like the size of uh It's like a teacup and a latte cup. Yeah. Yeah, so, there you go. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Like my nuts, dude. Yeah, so I'm confident on on that. So now it's time to start sealing up the uh crucibles. And I've heard, you know, I've heard guys say that if you completely seal the crucible, it can explode. But then you look at Nico and what he does, he actually seals his crucible with um, like fire cement clay. He puts yeah. the feet around it and then sticks the lid on and lets that harden and cure. And then he charge, then he melts his stuff. So I'm like, what well, the fuck? Floating, <laughs> you know, so crazy. He completely seals it. Yeah. What? That don't yeah. make no sense to me. I think a lot of the guys who are doing that kind of stuff are typically leaving at least a little bit of combustible material in there to be able to eat the oxygen. Huh. Yeah, and, and that might be too, you know, it might be. But from what I understand, uh, it's just his materials and glass, you know, he doesn't even poke a little vent hole or nothing. Mm. So the guy's not, you know, if he doesn't give out a lot of information. You know, he he's I've talked to him before through messaging on Instagram. Like I've I've just bought some iron powder from him that I guess he makes with phosphorus. It's got just the right amount of phosphorus in it. I'm going to start using that. Um, but you know, he's answered questions from me, but I've never just been like, Hey, tell me how to do this. I, I've never wanted <laughs> well, to, yeah, I've never wanted to be like that. Like, right, yeah. exactly. Like, I yeah. I don't want you to just give it to me. Like I'm always like, Hey, I'm right here. I've done this. I've gotten this far. Yeah. This. You know what I mean? And I show him like, Hey, I'm putting in effort to do this. And he's always exactly. and given me the right info that I've needed. Yeah. There's, that, there's a culture of that in blacksmithing. It's just like, if you're the random yeah. dudes, it's like, just tell me everything I need to know. You yeah. might well, get an answer, but you get a lot of people being like, Oh, it's like, you need to go try it and figure out the worst of it first. And then I'll give you the details. Yeah, he's not, and he's not. Well, he's not American either. He's he's uh, he lives in Finland, so his you know English, he, he translates back very very well. And, and, oh, that's and good. you know, another thing since we're talking about that is he did come back. He is like, like I said, man, that guy knows what's going on, man. He just did a paper with Verhoven uh, not too long ago. I think last year he had a paper that was published and came out on a new method of forging. Um, which is a uh, DET style of forging uh, divorce eutectoid transformation. Um, I haven't really uh, dove deep into that yet. <laughs> yeah, the article's out there. You can look up the article and read it. Um, a lot of good information in there. And like I said, Verhoeven, he's still active today in, in the research of loops. Like and he was working with Nico a year ago. Yeah. Um, Nico's writing a book 
too. I don't know when it'll be released, but he's working on a book, man. I'll be waiting for that. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, but like I said, uh, <clears throat> the uh, the paper. So anybody can can look it up and read it if you're interested. But you, you should go check his steel out, man. It's, we'll it's have amazing. to go post some links. <clears throat> um. So yeah, now that your melt temperature, you know, like I said, a, a, a hour and a half, sixteen hundred degrees. Um, and from there, once my ingot, once I'm, uh, you know, convinced that I'm everything is melted, and there's no more reactions going on, like it's not a big lot of bubbles, it's just kind of a rumble. I kind of, that's when I start to. I guess you could say solidify, which is an important step now because solidification rate affects your pattern. Mm-hmm. That's something I learned recently right. too. So faster solidification, you know, smaller crystals. Slower solidification, larger crystals. Too slow, no good. So you kind of want to be uh, just, I, I don't really have an answer of what's best. You know, I just, you don't want to solidify too slowly because they can rip apart your ingot, like literally rip it apart. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just, what I do is I ramp down from 2,900 degrees. I just kind of, I turn it down and in about a 10 to 15 minute period, I let that ramp down to about um, right at, I would say right above ACM. If you look at the, are you guys familiar with the iron carbon phase diagram? While I am, uh, I think maybe some explanation for our listeners is the iron iron carbon phase diagram is a that is such a good tool for when it comes to wheat. Yeah, Um, if it's it's a good tool for a lot of heat treating, you should really learn how to read them. If you know how to read a a, a iron carbon phase diagram, um, yeah, heat treating is you don't need to ask questions about heat treating. there's some things that differ, like uh, higher alloy contents. They kind of, you know, they shrink your austenizing window, but that's yeah. a totally different subject. But um, yeah, so uh, I I usually go from melt, and I just like I said, I let it cool down to about twenty three to twenty two hundred degrees, and then I shut my furnace off, put a put a, a lid over the the top of it. I'll just put some. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Tail wool over that with a brick, and then I just let it sit for 24 hours. I come back to it the next day, and I break the ingot open. So okay, uh, all right. And then once I get the ingot, and we're not breaking the crucible open. Crucibles are usable. You can use a salamander super crucible uh, on, on open melt about three times. Guys who seal them up say you can get about five melts out of them. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, but I, I usually get about three melts out of a salamander super. Where do you where do you find a salamander super? Crucible? Off, uh, Amazon, okay. Amazon or like any jewelry stores. Those like uh, PMC supplies is where I get mine from. I think they're in okay. New York because I buy them straight from Amazon and that's where they come from. Cool. Cool. And then, uh, <clears throat> so like I said, solidification rate uh, does affect your pattern, and you don't want to. Don't take your crucible out of there unless you can put it in something 
that's going to make it solidify slowly, you know, wrap it up in some insulation or something. But I, it's best to just, my opinion, it's best to just leave it in your furnace. You know, there are people who do multiple melts. You know, they'll take one crucible out, put it in like a furnace or something, and then, or I mean, like, like a kiln, yeah, like wrap it up or something like that. Or make you like next, something like that, yeah. And then their next charge goes in. You know, me, I, I don't, I don't need to do that. So, I just. Uh, let it solidify in the, in the furnace and then break it open, get your ingot out. And that's why, I, and that, that's where I'll uh, etch my window to see what kind of structure I have. And typically the structure that I see is a very, uh, um, it's a mix of what's known as grain boundary carbide, GBC, and uh, Woodman Stoughton carbide or needle-like carbides like acicular carbides they're very needle-like you'll you look at them i've posted pictures of this before right and they look like big huge needles you know and then yeah. the wavy you have these like wavy lines that's all your grain boundary carbide and okay. the, the, the the structure is those they're it's massive you know it's it's a massive uh structure so that's why you can see it so well yeah definitely on the macroscopic end right and and that's a good indication when you see that so i've never so apparently i've learned that there's two types of structure you can get there's a very dendritic grid like structure that's very like you know grit like a net you know Mm -hmm. okay Um, and then there's the uh widman stoughton structure that i see and that's what i like to see because that is indicative that's an indication that uh your carbon uh um your carbon levels are in the right range and alloy levels are in the right right range very pure so that's that's the uh an indication of a of a proper solidification it wasn't too fast you know and you're basically getting that because you have fast enough cooling um down to ACM the ACM line, which is your, uh, uh, it, that's where all carbide is dissolved. It's just your pure austenite zone of a 1.6% carbon steel. So if you have fast enough cooling to that, um, for an, enough time that all your primary carbides can dissolve, and then slow enough cooling from ACM down to A1, that's the kind of structure you're going to see. Um, and that's like I said. That's a good. That's what I like to see. So, uh, that's the reason why you want to etch your etch a window on the ingot and see what kind of structure you're dealing with. Because at that moment, you kind of have an idea of like how long maybe you need to roast your ingot for, which is the next step. All right. So, quickly before we get into that, you okay. <laughs> you grind your window, and uh-huh. then you do you etch it to be able to see the pattern. Yeah, and like Pericloride? I said, no. Okay, <clears throat> so I was wondering this too, man. Thank you. <laughs> this is why I jump in. I the hardest part for me on well, there's a lot of challenges I've had in making this uh, material, but etching is one of them, man. Etching is I've never had any luck with any etching except for coffee once, but that was on my blade. Um, the only thing that really works for me is nitol, two percent nitol, nitric acid. Uh, stuff's very expensive to get. I have to ship it. It has to be shipped 
uh, for one day overnight or two day shipping. It's like 60 bucks for a 500 milliliter bottle, but I end up paying 250 total to get it shipped to Alaska from, oh, from Alaska. Yeah. I've tried to find, I've heard diluted nitric works wonders, but the problem is I can't get it shipped to Alaska. Like a lot of people won't ship it to Alaska because it's hazardous. You know? Yep. Um, there's places that hold it, that have it here in Anchorage, but it's like a 55 gallon drum. Yeah. So, that I, is often a problem with trying to get a hold of industrial chemicals. You only come in industrial sizes. Mm -hmm. Dude, that's pickling paste for... Yes, stainless, yes, for like welding. So yeah. you can't just go to a welding store and get it? I, I, can't, I can't find it here. I can't find pickling paste, no. Oh, dude, there's a welding store has got to be able to import that shit. There's no welding stores there that's gonna can import that no, shit. No, there you? is, but it's you know I don't know that they you know I don't think they I don't really know, but I don't think they carry it because I've been down this road already. Okay. Um, uh, but I I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know I've cool. I've got the stuff, dude. I've bought it from a welding store here in Winnipeg. Yeah, and that it's basically nitric acid. Yeah, five. Well, five percent. Yeah, and I—that's the only stuff that's ever been able to work for me. That's it. I've never had really interesting. Ferric chloride does not for my steel. Some guys use it and have success with it, but I'll get—I'll get into that uh, further down the line. We'll talk about that. Here yeah, once we're talking about finished blades, I figured we were probably talking yes. about that. But I was just curious about this window. Whether you have to etch it to see it. Yeah, and like I said, you don't really need to etch it because you can see clearly, you know, once you polish it up, you can see clearly, like, I've seen the structure so much that I know what, what it is. You know? Right on. You don't need to really even etch it and look at it under a microscope. I just cool. do. I think it's freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. So yeah. next you're talking about roasting. Yes. Now, that is a very important step. Uh you have to understand your ingot right out of the crucible is very uh, brittle. It's a very brittle structure. And if you were to just take it out of the crucible and, you know, throw it in your forge and go to try to forge it, most likely you, you're going to fail. You're going <laughs> to crumble it. it's, it's just going to crumble on you, man. Um, you you, you, you got to roast. It's, it's, you have to roast open. Um, and the reason that you want to roast is obviously you're preparing the ingot to be forged. So you're dissolving all your carbide. You're, you're, you're putting all that carbide into solution and you're giving some room for uh, a little bit of room for the CFDs to kind of move around. You know, I, I they don't really move like the carbon does. Uh, phosphorus will move around too. But yeah, but the big carbides are, well, too big. Yeah. And that's why you're you're roasting. You're preparing the ingot to be forged. So you're getting everything dissolved and moving around. And that's like um, four hours for a uh, 2,200 gram ingot. At and what kind of temps? I roast for, it depends on your carbon content, which you always want to be above ACM. So if you look at the iron carbon phase diagram to the right of, um, Hypoeutectic steels, you have hypereutectic steels, right? So if you go to like 1.6%, follow that up, you'll see the ACM line. You want to be above that. 
you want to be quite a bit above that because there's also a graphite line. That's something you want to be a, uh, you don't want to be under that, which is just slightly above ACM is where um, graphite will uh, dissolve. So you want to be above that. And I usually roast at about 1,922 degrees Fahrenheit uh, for, four, for four hours for a 2,200 gram ingot. So, Holy fuel consumption, Batman. Yeah, well, I do it How many tanks of propane you're running through doing that? No, I, I use a kiln to, to roast. Uh, electric? Yeah. Yeah, I use a gen, I have a Genkin vertical air bath kiln. It's freaking awesome, dude. Uh, oh, wow. I will say. Yeah, I was just doing a uh, a demonstration here in Anchorage of, of, of a roots demonstration, and I was using a friend's um, even heat kiln. And maybe it was something we were doing. It was fully ramped all the way up. There was another smith there who has the same exact kiln. It took like three and a half hours, dude, to get to 1922 degrees Fahrenheit. That's unusual. Yeah. Is that a 120 unit versus a 220 unit, maybe? 220. Huh. 220, yeah. I didn't think, I thought something was wrong. Yeah. Something's not working right there because that shouldn't be that big a deal. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I'm like, dude, this kiln sucks, dude. If it takes that long to get to this, how long does it take you to heat treat a blade, dude? Like, but uh. I, I don't know, man. All I know is my Jenkin in like 35 minutes, I'm at that temperature, dude. Like, and wow. you don't count, and you don't count uh, time to temp. You count once it gets to temp. Yeah, and that's common for any kind of, uh, you know, solidified uh, ingot steel. Even in industry, they roast. Uh, you know, ingots of like 52100 uh, roasts for like I don't know four or five hours before they roll it out. So it's it's very common, you know. Um, but yeah, roasting is an important step, and I will say, from my own um, experience, not roasting long enough can have an effect on your pattern. So, which comes down to me telling you that. All these processes are what gives you the end result. It's not just one process. Like I'm using yep. the same material with the same size ingots, right? And I was roasting for two hours, and my patterns were shit, man. Like, but that's not to say that my uh, temperature forging out. Uh, Getting ahead of myself here, but the first stage of forging possibly could have been um, too low of temp. There's a lot of factors involved too. Yeah, this is not a simple material to work with. Uh, Once again, I think this is why it hasn't caught on quite as much. This is a technical challenge to do. Yeah, I've got it pretty dialed in now. I have a way better understanding. Um, And something that you got to have a thermal couple, man. I don't care how good you think you are at looking at temperatures. Uh, I thought I was good at looking at temperatures, man. And I'm not. (laughs) I've I've got a thermocouple on my forge. Because I was do, I was forging with, so that's why I'm, I mean, like there could have been other factors that were involved. The reason why my patterns weren't, were horrible in the beginning with the same material is because, um, you know, my, my temperature could have been off of the initial forging because I wasn't using a thermal couple. I was just doing this by eye. Yeah. You know, thinking like, oh, shit. I, oh, yeah. You know, I can, 
I don't need no thermal cup pool. Like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been you that know? guy. We've all been yeah. that guy. Yeah. So, there, so you've there, done like your, I said, there you've are done your roast. Yeah. So I roast four hours, get that ingot ready to go and take it out of the forge and go right to forging. Don't let it cool down. Just go straight to forging. And that's where you have your first stage of forging. And that's where, that's like where, uh, in, in, in your first stage, that's like where the conversion takes place. That's where you start to kind of, that dendritic structure, it basically gets, you know, uh, laid down and elongated in the direction of forging. And uh, <clears throat> now it needs to be high enough. So that's okay. So sorry, there's like 10,000 thoughts in my head. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no worries, man. This goes back to what I was talking about, Pendre and Verhoeven, you know, and, and Pendre's process not being um, uh, uh, completely uh, correct. Um, so he was forging ingots, in, like in the documentary, you know, in, in the papers. He was going above ACM forging, like heavy forging, going down to A1 every cycle, which is totally incorrect. You need to forge in the first stage. That needs to be above ACM. That needs to be a that needs to be a pure austenite, you know, above the ACM uh, line. That's where your first stage of forging is. So you're looking where, in that kind of bright orange yellow range, like eighteen nineteen hundred. Yeah, yeah. You don't, but you don't want to get too high into what is known as the slushy zone, um, because that's like partial liquid and partial solid yeah especially when you're yeah. dealing with something that's that high in carbon your slush zone is going to be much yeah. lower yeah, and it's you, a much smaller window it'll start to kind of fracture so you got to stay away from that man all right so was I, was I about right in the temperature range there 1819 yeah yep same basically your, your your roast temp is you know well is right where you need to be you need to stay in that you know you gotta you, once you start to get, once you start, don't, don't drop below ACM. Stay above ACM forging until you're at a bar thickness. Okay? Well, you're to where you're like, I don't know, three eighths, three eighths inch thick, where you're like, you got a little bit more bar to draw out, and then you're going to be forging a blade. Right okay? on. And, then and that's your okay. Point. So are you doing the more traditional like punch a hole, make a donut, cut the donut, stretch it out into a bar, or are you just no. manually manipulating the puck? into a bar shape nope. so i okay that's another good point to bring up too is the top of the ingot there's a bunch of it's all the crappy material okay so you got to put that somewhere i mean i suppose you could grind it out before you forge it but i don't you're wasting so, material yeah yeah if you're, so let's say you're going to make a uh you know if you're going to make a dagger something with two edges on it you got to put it on the face you don't want to put it on uh your your spine but essentially, when you get to a bar, you can grind it out. And that's usually what I do. I okay. always put the top of the ingot. I put the top of the ingot on the spine. And then I grind it out once it's uh, at a bar form. You know, when it's still relatively thick, I just grind it all out and get rid of it. And then, uh, and then if you were to, like I said, if you were to do a dagger, you'd have to put it on the face of it and you know, grind it out. Grind away, yeah. So how many heats are you looking at 
for your process? Like how, like how aggressively are you able to forge it? And at what point do you start being able to really so, first, treat it like steel? again? That's another good point. There's probably going to be a few things that I, I leave out and I'm sorry for that. Uh, it's okay, man. But one thing is, okay. So you can have like tiny little microscopic pores inside your ingot. And those are areas where uh, graphite can precipitate. So, uh, which, you know, that's kind of something to look out for when you're uh, making glue graphite. Graphite can form in your steel. Um, um, so that's, but when you take your ingot onto your, when I take it out of the, the kiln from the roast, I put it on my press and I just start pressing down on the, on the bottom part of the ingot. Because this is your only flat surface. So I put this down and I start to press this way just to kind of close up any kind of pores that are in there. Uh, you know, because um, like I said, uh, graphite can form in those. And um, you know, there's things that, you know, some alloys in your steel that you, you don't want, stuff like aluminum, uh, nickel, uh, high silicon levels, phosphorus levels, can all contribute to uh, graphite formation. So, um, you know, any, any excess carbon uh, uh, that can't, you know, form carbide forms graphite. And graphite is something you don't want in your steel. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah perfect sense, yeah. man. Yeah. So, and there's things, like I said, those alloys are what, like, they uh, um, actively push carbon into graphite, things like nickel, you know, like. A, a substantial amount of nickel because I've had people ask me like, "Oh, you should put nickel in your in your steel," and I'm like, "It's obvious they don't really understand, you know, what's going on. <laughs> they don't they don't understand this isn't you know, this, this isn't you know pattern welded Damascus, man. Like, that's right? Not how it works. Yeah, you're not doing that's this good. in an electric arc furnace. Yeah, the dude. vacuum. Yeah. Like it's this is old school. Yeah, you? Could you pattern weld it with, say, nickel sheet after it's been forged out to a bar? And forge weld roots, yes. But it needs to be done very early on. Um, it's not, I mean, to me, it's just kind of a waste. Okay. I thought about it, and I'm like, man, do I really want, what do I want to do? Do I want to put it on the edge where you can't see the pattern? Or do I want to put it as cladding where you don't get the kind of performance that the, all those carbides provide. Not that uh, Wootz is some special steel. It's definitely not uh, superior to any modern blade steel today. I would say it's probably similar to 1084 with some maybe better slicing characteristics. That's it. That's interesting with that high of a carbon content that that's kind of what it's performing like. Yeah, it's well, you lose a lot of toughness too with all the carbide in there. Yeah. So, um. Is that that's about a D two carbon content? Is it isn't it? Yeah, a lot of lot of uh, other D two stainless some stainlesses, I believe, and high speed uh, steels as well. Yeah, they all have patterns too, man. They yep. make patterns. Really? But, yeah, yeah, they're just extremely apart. fine. Oh. Yeah, they they break them apart uh, when they you know they roll them out, break it all apart. And basically, they get rid of it all. Not woots, though. Right. They have very dendritic patterns if they have a lot of higher 
alloy content too. And a lot of those alloys, like I said, they take up carbon as well. So, mm. um, yeah, that's what they're in there uh, for, right? That's where you're trying, right. you're putting those alloying elements in, especially thing like tungsten and high speed steel to form yeah, these very big, very tough, very resistant carbides. Yeah. And, you know, performance characteristics as well, you know, for whatever you're trying to do. Absolutely. So, um, once you get your, uh, <clears throat> once you have the ingot, you know, consolidated into a bar, okay. So I, I like to look at, uh, I, I, something I learned here recently too is I like to look. If, I guess it, it's best to look at, you know, stage one and stage two as, um, you know, your stage one as like uh, structure. You're, you're converting that structure. That's where the conversion is taking place from dendritic to lamellar. Okay. How, like I said, how that is exactly happening, nobody really knows. It's still a mystery today. Um, so it, that's, that's the interesting part about Woots. But uh, that's, uh, and then next, the second stage is basically there's no conversion, con, there's no uh, conversion taking place. Um, only carbides are forming now on, on your on your uh, second stage, so that's going to be uh, below ACM forging now. It's going to be closer to A1 temperatures. Look at the iron carbon phase diagram. A1 is like uh, 13, 13 something hundred degrees. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, I usually always have to go back to the diagram and look at it. I'm not, I haven't memorized it completely, but um, your A1 temperature, you know, is what they call critical. You hear the term, oh, bring it up past critical. Well, critical is your A1 temp. So The curry point. Yeah. That's basically uh, where the steel turns non-magnetic. Yeah, right. it goes from a body-centered cubit to a face-centered cubit. What, exactly. what color-ish are you looking for at that point? If, if you could say that it was a color. Red. Uh, yeah, I would say it's it's red, but um, it, it, you know a very I don't, orange, orange because you don't have to be right at a one. Yeah, it's just you know eight hundred degrees C. Okay, you know. I'm just thinking of the guys that eyeball this shit. Like, how do they eyeball these? Th this how they did this thousand years ago dude yeah that's like it's a, a developed skill you have to get used of, to your environment your forge and your light well those and, guys yeah. that do it still right yeah there are guys who do it but it's one of those things where, where oh. color and light is something yes. that's so incredibly variable right but, yeah <laughs> basically once you're above the curry point like that's where you're going to be forging almost every steel anyways okay right like uh you just don't want to be up so high that you're gonna start to get your crystal structure breaking down yeah um and that's interesting because i you know i can't remember exactly where i heard this but i was listening to peter burt mention about uh when some historian was uh you know he was documenting the process of smith's um you know, forging an ingot out and their explanation for 
uh, the color of the temperature was like, you know, bright red, strong red, you know, like, uh, it's like, well, what is that? <laughs> what, what does that mean? Oh, yeah. And well, it doesn't help that different cultures and languages have different words for different colors. <laughs> yeah, well, and, then, and he makes a good point, too, is like, well, well, was he actually shown a real process? Was he being shown a real process or were they just bullshitting? You know, like, making well, that's things? always another question to ask. Yeah, yeah were, were they like, yeah, if this guy, we're going to, you know, BS him and make him, make him think that we're, you know, this is our real process. Like, how they, I guess, how they interpreted colors then is so different from now. Like, we're like red, orange, yellow, white. They're like bright red, strong red, you know, dull red. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <What? laughs> it's That's the problem with doing color stuff. It's so very subjective, right? Like, it's – if you're trying to explain to somebody how to do something, especially without being able to physically show them, um, you just kind of got to rely on numbers. Yeah. 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 and. Yeah, so that's the next stage of forging. It's the second stage is that you know below ACM forging, you know, closer to A one. That's where you start to really, um, like I said, there's no conversion taking place. You're just you know uh, a lot of carbides are forming. They're forming on all the dislocations. Uh, so, and then you basically got a blade, but you have to understand that um, you know roots benefits from forging. More forging that you're doing, the better. That's why I don't recommend people uh, buy a bar and just stock them. You know, hmm. out on there's so much. That's why I don't want to get. That's why I don't want to sell bars. I don't want to sell ingots. I don't want to do any of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want to. You know, if it's like, oh, the homie, you know, yeah, you know. But it's like I don't want to get into the business of doing this and then people messing it up and thinking that. I'm, I did something wrong. Yeah, right. so, Can so I be so your homie? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I don't want to deal with that, man. He sends nudes. He doesn't want to deal with yeah. homies. <laughs> so it's just, I don't want to deal with that, man. I don't want to. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. Like, I do not, as a general rule, sell Damascus billets to people. Like, it's the yeah. kind of thing where it's like, you know, Damascus is, is so easy to get failures in, and I mean, Woots is even more so. And Like, you send a bar off to somebody and it's got a big flaw in it or something. You haven't taken the time to forge it and be able to examine it. You know, yep. there, it's a big headache to be able to actually do that kind of stuff. <sighs> this does mean, yeah. unfortunately, that I'm going to have to build myself a casting furnace <laughs> smelting furnace oh man do it <laughs> terry i know you're gonna listen to this we got another build to do buddy well it's, it's important to emphasize on you know second stage and first stage yeah it's basic you know it's really that simple obviously a thermal cover makes it a lot easier but you gotta have you're, you're gonna have a lot shorter forging cycles too you know yeah i don't have a lot of forging cycles yeah you're not gonna be able to really work that down into the dull reds 
no, because no, you're going to crack I that thing apart. Steels with higher alloy contents in it, and that changes. I mean, when you start adding higher, uh, you know, carbide forming elements, then it, it changes everything. Everything, all all your lines move, your ACM line moves, everything moves, and uh, I think you can get away with higher forging temperatures, um, especially in the second stage with uh, higher carbide forming elements. Because I still had some pretty decent patterns with um, an, an addition of niobium in my steel. Like that, I've had some pretty wicked patterns with that stuff. Um, not so much the very watered pattern that we like to see. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to go for. Uh, the reason I was really, the reason I was, you know, I made a blade and I did a YouTube video of adding alloys and, and that was just, it was just for fun and experimentation. Man. Like, it made yeah, what the hell? Why blade. not? Yeah. It, nah. it, that's why I have it roots and parentheses because I don't really consider it roots when you start to get higher alloy content in the steel. So, uh, yeah, this is another thing that's always a headache with this is terminology. People yeah, can get like real butthurt about not, it. Yeah, you know, the, that's not real Damascus. Those guys oh, my God. They have the same idiots that, that's not real Woots. It's like, dude, go away. <laughs> it's like, unless no, you're doing it, stop commenting on it. I'm like, I'm like I'm used, I use the term Woots because people know what I'm referring to. You it's, know what I'm talking about. It's basically just that Rod Swanson meme of, I know more than you. Yeah. Just, I know exactly what this is. Stop screwing around with the words. Yeah, I don't even argue with people anymore. Man. <laughs> okay, whatever. It's, it's, no, like I said, there's a lot of misinformation out there, man. So you have people that quote, you know, Kendra and Verhoeven's work a lot. And it's like, man, what do you guys know? You know, or they want to tag that documentary, you know. And I have a lot of respect for their work, you know, I obviously. Oh, yeah, they were very influential in helping to bring this process back to blacksmithing and bladesmithing in the West. Yep. Right? But they were also a bit on the secretive side about things and didn't give out complete information. Yeah, well, they I just they just didn't know. Like, you know, nobody knows today. What, what's that driving factor? What is it? What is the seed? Still, you know, I, I believe it's just the whole process in general. Everything. You know, it's from, like I said, it's from the melt to, to your last forging cycle, man. That's, you know, and the really, another really cool thing about Woots is, man, when you start to grind your bevels on your plate, you can see that, that pattern, that, that's where I say, if you do the sec, the second stage right, your pattern is so visible, dude. It's so vital. Like, if you start to grind in your bevel, at 36 grit, it's bam, there, man. You're like, holy Whoa. shit. Nice. Yeah, it's not, it's just like, bam, man, right in your face. And it's like, dude, this is so crazy. And, and then, and then I have the problems of really bringing the pattern out etching. Cause I, I mean, I, I don't have problems etching because I use Nidol. I just wish I could find something that, not, cause using ferric, you have two structures. I mean, you have basically two structures if you're looking at on the blade, right? You, you have this, I don't want to say, uh, you know, you have, okay, you, it's not, it's not like a layer structure, okay? It's, it's a lamellar structure. 
it's not really layers, but uh, like pattern welded, I mean. But when you etch it, like in ferric, it just brings out like that dendritic structure. And it doesn't bring out the cementite. It doesn't bring out the carbide. Okay? So it's ugly looking. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? You know? But then you etch it in nitric, and it's like, bam, dude. So sometimes even what you're etching in can give a false, uh, you know. Have, have you tried muriatic? Uh, you know, I, I, if I, no, I haven't. I haven't tried okay. muriatic, but I haven't talked to anybody that's used it and said it works. I assume muriatic probably acts like ferric does. Um, eh, it would be interesting to see. Like, it does behave very differently. Muriatic acid. It totally etches wrought iron completely differently. I'll tell you that much. Like, it's the kind of thing where it's, I, the only way to tell would be to try. And it does, and it, and it reacts completely different on stainless steel too. Muriatic versus uh, pickling paste. Yeah. Nitric. Yeah. It's a completely different etch. I mean, I'll try it. Never heard anybody have the, success for it. I've, the other I've thing, I've tried oxalic acid, um, citric. That's what uh, Peter Burt uses. Oxalic acid. Kind of, yeah, he makes his own batch of oxalic, and I've made one before, but I couldn't get it. I, I couldn't get anything. What the hell is oxalic acid? It's like a wood bleach stuff. Okay. What yeah, about it, citric acid? Have you ever thought of that? No. Try to get the concentrations. Uh, that you need well because the there's two passivation processes you you can do for stainless steel one is nitric acid the other is citric acid citric acid takes a few different bath processes to do it's not just a one-step process like nitric acid is but yeah Yeah, i think yeah go ahead we're trying i don't want to sound like i'm ignorant and i uh, i just was like very much in a rush to find something oh, that works, dude. Oh, when you sure, find yeah. something that works, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, like, I like. I oh, think it's man. fun. No, I'll just f it, dude. I'll just buy the the nitric and be done with it, man. And then, yeah, I, I get phenomenal results with nitric acid. Yeah, it's just expensive, man. I, yeah. Like I said, I've had coffee work for me uh, on one chemistry, you know, where I had the addition of niobium. Now these ingots I'm showing you here are more pure. There's no, this is just iron and sorrel. So we'll see how that does in coffee. I, I know a couple guys um, who are using, who have great success with coffee. And I, like I said, that, that the knives I etched in coffee, I was like, holy crap, dude. It was great, man. Yeah. It's, but I think the pattern was so vibrant, too. You know, like I said, that's a factor, too, in, in etching. Sometimes if you, you screw it up, then. You know, you, there's so much to go into, man. Like I could talk about this forever. Like, but like, but we want you to. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, the whole speckled. point. <laughs> well, sometimes I've gotten like these speckled patterns too, which is incorrect forging temperatures. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, in the second stage, you're not forging hot enough. And you but does it look cool? Like no, oh. it looks horrible. Okay. You got a pattern on there to the to the untrained eye. They're like, "Oh yeah, that's really cool." To me, I'm like, "That's crap. (laughs) That's not what I'm going for." Uh, but um, yeah. So, and and when that happens, it's harder to bring the pattern out. You know, 
I, I've noticed when that happens, you know, um, it, it takes a while in the etch to really bring out the pattern in, in, in nitrate. Um, and then you start to build up so much oxide on it that it's just, it's just a horror story, man. What do you do to clean the nitric acid after you're done? I just, uh, baking soda and water. Baking soda. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now, there's a couple things I wanted to ask you about that are like steps back. Um, okay. So, what is it like actually trying to move this stuff under the hammer? It's tough, man. Yeah, it's it's a really resilient uh, steel. It's like trying to yeah, forge stainless. Yeah, the ingot to a bar is it's, it's. I can't imagine how these guys did this so long ago, man. I mean, it's, it's big burly dudes with sledgehammers. Yeah, I mean, even on a power hammer, dude, it's just like, Jesus, stuff is just tough. But as you break it up more and you get into a bar, it starts to be a little bit more valuable, you know, it starts to move a little better, you know, because you've broken right. that structure up. Right. Enough, it's a little bit, like I said, it's a little more malleable. So. Right. And then what about grinding it? What's it like to grind file? Is it pretty That's normal? There is, there is decard issues. You do build up a lot of decard. It's very interesting material, man, too. Another thing is when you're forging it, the scale on it doesn't – it's very small, flaky scale. It's not like – It's not like the big chunks like, of it, eh? Yeah, no, man. The, the big it's flakes. Very small. Yeah, and it's really cool because sometimes when you're forging it and it's hot, like, you know, pattern mode steel, you can see the pattern in it sometimes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can see that in the whoops, too, man. You can see your, your pattern there, you know. It's like, all right, dude. That's so cool, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I mean, you know, I I still have a lot of of learning to do in the subject. I still have a lot of, um, you know, uh, experimentation. Uh, it's, it, it takes years to really, in my opinion, it takes years to master this stuff. Oh, absolutely, and, and, sure. and to learn the metallurgy, man. Um, I, I I'm just, you know, scratching the surface, in my opinion. I've made quite a bit of ingots and I've forged quite a bit, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a rookie at it, but compared to these other guys, you know, who's doing it for 20 years, it's like, I don't hold a candle to them. Yeah. I think yeah. you've got the same thing going on that a lot of us do, where it's like, you get to the point where you start feeling like, you know what you're doing. And then you find out what other people are doing. And you're like, Ooh, yes. I've still got a lot, to, a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, every moment I think I got a grasp on it, and it's like, bam. Well, bam. Yeah. that's, I think that's a good thing, man. I don't think, and I think you should have that for forever. You should never get to a point where you're like, oh, that's yeah, I just. Why I'm so interested in it is because of the challenge aspect, man. Yeah, for it's sure. So challenging. There's so much to learn. Like, you know, like, I, not to, not to down, you know, like making Damascus or, you know, Kumar. I've done all that, dude. And I don't want to sound like I'm on my high horse, but that stuff's kind of easy, you know. Uh, maybe not mosaic in in the sense because there's a lot of, you know, pattern manipulation and like there's a lot of cutting your billet up with special tools, you know, and then stack. There's a lot of just stacking your billet up in a right way. You know? I mean, I don't want to take that away from anybody because that's still a challenging process. Oh yeah, process. right? Like long process. I think at every stage of knowledge, you're going to find the things that are 
challenging if in nothing else that they're failure prone yeah right like you know when you start out just forging period it's hard to do things like get upsets to go right you know like they always want to go and buckle off to the side or something right. and you're having to forge back to straight and that's forging it out which means more upsetting and blah 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 all right so that's like one of those like when you're first starting out that's challenging then you're you go and you start getting in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You start getting into doing some more advanced stuff and you start doing Damascus. And Damascus, when you yeah. first start out, you get cold shots every bloody time because you're not used to like what your process needs to be. Good welds. You know, and even I still, uh, you know, often enough will get like, you know, failures in Damascus. So that's that kind of thing, right? I know I've got more to learn. And there's still, it's that. Yeah that kind of failure prone process. And then you move on to something that's even more technical, like woots, you know, it's that yeah, same that's thing that's point. happening over and over again as your yeah. skills build. That's an excellent point. And I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause yeah, that's exactly what I've gone through as a smith. You know, when I first started forge welding, it was like, this is so difficult. But then once you get that down, it's like, oh, this is nothing. And it just becomes so simple, you know, and <laughs> move on from there to the other bigger things. But yeah, it's all part of the evolution. Yeah, I'm just not interested in making mosaic Damascus, man. Like, it doesn't, I think it's beautiful. I think, like, you look at the stuff Moreto's doing. Oh, uh, God. Salem Straub Straub and that chain that he does. It's just like mind blowing the the creativeness of these guys and their patterns, man. Yeah. But then again, everybody's just got their own thing. You've got to find your thing. And that's something that I've talked about on the podcast before. It's like, take your time, find your thing. I'm all about it, dude. Like, I'm all about just doing, being different. I just want to be different, do something different. And I think I found that with Woot. Even though there's, you know, there's, I I don't know, I could probably think of 12 guys off the top of my head that are making it. but I, then I think like there's probably five or six guys that are making it consistent. Yeah, and if you think about a global population, that's a relatively select skill. Yeah, yeah. So like how many guys are making mosaic today? Right. Well, that, even that, the guys making mosaic, that is still a relatively select skill, even amongst blacksmiths. Yeah. And, then, and, and hey, and then you got guys that are like, I don't want to make boots. I don't want to gives a crap about that stuff like, oh yeah well there's the knife makers who are all into the super steels they're gonna look at woots and be like ah eh, no yeah exactly uh, yeah, I'm you not know into the super and that's once again that's everybody's got their own I'm thing not, i don't care about how good a steel looks on paper you gotta make me wonder i wonder what um oh, use, use the knife dude is it a good knife yeah does it work lots of good yeah, knives I, made out of ots old wet spring <laughs> Yeah, I gotta wonder what uh, Trupa would think of getting into the Woot scenario and playing around with looking at that. That would be great. That guy should, man. Yeah. I, I wonder if you guys, have you ever talked with him before? No, I've seen his work on Instagram. Uh, Beautiful work. Time right? to drop him a DM. Yeah, I yeah, think I you guys should. follow each other. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's always a uh, possibility, man. Hey, I mean, great minds get along, man. Uh, so i had the one other thing i wanted to get into before we kind of like uh wandered off again was uh heat treating this stuff what on earth are you doing to heat treat something that's got 1.6 percent carbon magic 
Yeah. You, the blood of your the blood of a moose. Uh, <laughs> this, is this like full, only full moons? Yeah, is your quench tank oriented north south? The lineup with yeah. the magnetic field, like well, what kind a, of wizardry goes into this? He's in Alaska, so it's nighttime twenty four hours in the winter time. Yeah. So yeah, it's dark in the winter and light in the summer, man. Summer times are off. Yeah. Um, heat treat's really simple, man. So roots will, you know, readily harden from about fourteen hundred degrees, uh, fourteen twenty five. You don't need to austenize for uh, heat. I, so yeah, fourteen twenty five for maybe a soak of five minutes. That's all you need. You only need to put point seven seven percent carbon in the solution. You're not putting all that carbon in the solution because a lot of it is being really, retained into the carbides and the dendrites and all the stuff that you're looking. Yeah, for. but well, it really, Woots it is it's pockets of car of carbon. Yeah, places. You know, it's not like you're going to put one point six percent carbon in solution. No. Um, yeah, you're going to end up with something that's way, way, way too brittle. Yeah, you only need to austenize just above 1,400 degrees. And, and like I said, there's so much stuff that I, I haven't even talked about, and that's hardenability, too. But with this chemistry that I'm working with, with sorrel and iron, it's basically free of manganese. So it's a shallow hardened steel. Oh, okay. I, I use Parks 50 to quench it at 170 degrees. It's really thin. Kind of mimicking water, mm-hmm. it's probably hardening in water, no problem. That's but um, yeah, it's a very shallow hardening steel. You get a really cool hamone on it. So once you're like, and you only need to sand up to about 800 grit. Uh, that's about it. It doesn't benefit from any higher polish than that that, I, that I've noticed. Hmm. That's interesting. But yeah, it's, it's, you're going to get a hamone on it just about every time, as long as you're using more pure material. Um, it's historically was a shallow hardening steel. You have higher alloying content. Like that's another thing is manganese, dude. Um, I've been told that like high amounts of manganese and high carbon steels like Woots uh, is detrimental. And it, it makes it very uh, um, brittle, from from what I understand. Interesting. Uh, See, because yeah. in most commercial steels, you've got a fairly high content of manganese. Just because well, in the production um, process so it prevents hot shorting. Yeah, but it also a lot of the carbon is taken up in alloys, so you see higher alloy content. Yeah, yep. And that's that's why the manganese doesn't have that kind of effect. But also if you look at steels like W two, like Hitachi Blue, they're yep. very high in carbon but very low in manganese. Yeah. I think they go over 0.2 percent of manganese. They're all oh. shallow hardened steel. Really interesting if you look at those steels chemistry you're like huh well, they don't go over um you know some of the you know crucible steels the cpm steels that's a whole different process you know they, they have a better um i guess you know i'm not I'm complete knowledgeable on it but i know that you know they uh the alloys they can get away with higher alloy content in the steel or something because of the um they get uh, better uh, segregation from uh, how they inject the alloys into the steel yeah. The powder, you know? Something yeah, like that's, that. that's the, the powdered that's metal stuff is a bit of kind of voodoo. Like, yeah. you know, they're they're they're, they're getting into real high-tech science-y stuff. Yeah, like you can't, you, you really can't do that with, you know, solidified, like, ingot, you know, the 
typical ingot, standard ingot structure steel. That's no, uh, you need to be once again working in a vacuum furnace, electric arc. Yeah, you, you'll get like macro segregation of alloys and, and try to mimic cruci- uh, CPM steels with like crucible steels. Yeah. Uh, no, not really. But yeah, heat treat is just just like that, dude. And, you know, I temper it about uh, four twenty-five. Right on, giving you a nice, Nothing. tough, relatively springy. What kind of uh, Rockwell hardness are you getting? I know you don't got a tester, uh, but fifty-nine. Well, I've got uh, one at our shop. Oh, okay, fifty-nine. I use for about fifty-nine. Fifty-nine is pretty so perfect. I, yeah, for for most yeah. general use knives, like I know the chef's knives, people get up into the like. This, the mid sixties, they're making stuff make like knives. glass. But yeah, for for make... anything that you're gonna chop a log with, uh, you're not gonna want to have Rockwell sixty five. Yeah, no, I uh, I don't I don't make chef's knives. I like to make hunting knives. Yeah, smaller little hunting knives. That's it. Dude. At which what point you're 51... looking at fifty eight fifty nine is just about perfect. Yeah. What does fifty one sixty come out to it if you do a proper temper and hardness on it? About fifty eight. But okay, typically is around fifty eight. Depending on it, depends on your temper. But yeah, I, I use two steels, dude. I'm not. I don't go all. Of, I don't. I use fifty two one hundred for basically all my mono steels, and I use ten eighty ten eighty four for a lot of uh, other kind of work I do. You know, fan my uh, stainless. You know, I, I stick with a basic simple carbon steel to forge weld with. And fifty two one hundred for um mono steel man. Makes sense, man. What do you what do you do to uh preserve your blades when you're done making them? Do you oil them up with anything? Maybe linseed oil or something like that? Moose blood. Moose blood. <laughs> moose blood. <laughs> Rendered moose fat. <laughs> <laughs> you no, should uh, you should try Getting some uh, the Twiller linseed oil product. They make the stuff flax wax. And they also make another product called Linshield. Both of oh, them are cool. supernatural, awesome products made in Canada. The guy that makes the stuff, he grows the uh, flax and processes it at his uh, home there, and does everything right from his home place out in Saskatchewan. There, and yeah, man, we can That's save good. you ten percent on orders fifty dollars or more. Yeah, send me send me a link to that. I'm interested. Will do. By the way, Lando, that was like the smoothest transition to a sponsor read I think you've ever done. That was that was (laughs) just zoop right in there. That had some Astro Glide on her, buddy. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, bud. (laughs) Like normally it's so awkward, but that was just like that was great. Thanks, man. Yeah, I just use a wax. I've been using axe wax. Yeah, yeah. This uh, Linshield stuff lab. is pretty awesome stuff, dude. I'm, yeah, I'll uh, try it out, man. Super I'm stoked on it. Uh, definitely down for that. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, super that's sweet. the stuff with the carbonate wax in it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then the flax wax is just uh, Linsh. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Linseed with lin linseed oil and God words today linseed oil and uh, beeswax. Yeah, the thing that uh, separates him from a lot of other 
wood waxes is he doesn't put any other additives into it that uh yeah. dryers yeah dryers perfumes anything like that so you're yeah. getting 100 natural product with this stuff oh yeah the dryers is are the is the worst part like especially when you're working with like if you get quote-unquote boiled linseed oil at a hardware store right you get chemical dryers that are put into it to mimic the actual boiling process and it just ends up giving you this oddly gummy finish. Gummy. You've got to be really careful with, like, don't get me wrong. You can use it, but it's going to give you this really strange gummy finish if you're not careful about making sure that you're doing several wipe backs in between coats and really smoothing it out, and letting it sit and harden, right? Whereas if you're actually using a proper boiled linseed oil, it's uh, it just... It's just so much simpler. This is hilarious that we're bringing this up because right here beside me, I've got a little container that I use to soak a hammerhead in. Yeah. And there, there was a little bit of linseed oil that was, was, was left over in the bottom of it, and it's pooled into the bottom. This was a couple of months ago. It's, it's, not, it's still not gummy. It's got a little bit of a hardened top to it, but it, you can still feel its gelatin underneath of it. But, man... No gumminess. Nice. Yeah. So, time to wind her down, or what do you think? Been going for a while here. Where are we at? I don't know. Yeah, we're getting a thumbs up. It's like, oh, I gotta get the hell out of the way for these losers. No, 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 no. no. Good. <laughs> we're hosers, not my, losers. My, my kids are here, so. Uh, okay. Oh, geez. Life and responsibilities getting in the way of, you know, sitting here and nerding out about steel. And, you know, for anybody that's really interested in this and really wants to learn, I highly suggest going to International Week Society. Like 50 bucks a year. There, I'm telling you, man, there is so much good information. Those guys are so awesome. There's so much historical information. Everything you need to know about the subject. And they've just got a website? Oh, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a website. You can join. You know, like I said, 50 bucks a year. And they also have a thing called, uh, they're doing like a, like, you know, um, what is it? Oh, it's on a blank. Um, like Master Smith, Journeyman Woot Smith, Journeyman. Or oh, Master really? Smith. They're doing ratings. Oh, that's yeah, you cool. Have to be a year, you have to be a, a member for a year. And then I guess I, I'm assuming it's like uh, ABS testing, where you have to you have to have made three at least three roof blades, and then you'll go through some rigorous testing, and then you get a you know, journeyman roof smith thing, which you know. Very I, cool. That's actually I really neat. Say. Very cool. Yeah, I, I like I said, it, you know, you have Peter Burt in there, Timothy Mitchell. There's a guy from his name's Jen from Roots Military, and those guys. Like I, they're they're so knowledgeable on the subject, man, and they're and they're quick to answer questions. Anything, like I said, anything you want to know, man, they they they, they will tell you, and it, it's awesome information, man. It, you know, there's diagrams laid out, boots, carbon calculators, like it's such a good reference of information, man, on this subject. And, and, and I, I've been in there asking all kinds of questions, man, from the stupidest. 
Right on, man. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I mean, you have a, you have Peter Burt in there, and that guy is like an encyclopedia, dude. Gotta love finding those guys. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just like it's, he's so knowledgeable. And, you know, he doesn't I try to hide anything. Um, so, you know, never heard of Peter Burke? Go check him out, man. And Nico Heinemann as well. Wicked. Now, are those your uh, shout outs? Do you have any other guys you want to shout out before we start wrapping this up? Uh, Timothy Mitchell. Um, and, you know, all the guys over there at the uh, society. And, there's another guy I want to shout out. I can't think of his name. He he makes some really good loots, and he doesn't have a big following um, on Instagram, but I can find him here really quick, possibly. Hopefully. Um, dang. While he's looking him up, Nick. Yes, Lando? He had an oh shit moment recently. Oh, what? My... Uh... My 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 poor draw knife. No, that's not what I mean. Remember, we last episode we were like, "Oh, let's do a oh shit segment or whatever it was." Oh, something where you've done something and been like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> yeah, but he's got. I think he's got the name now. All right, uh, Jacob Christensen, um, Veslin Blade Works. Uh, he's he's making woots and. He makes some pretty awesome water patterns, man. That's so wicked. Go check him out too. We and I'm sure Lando will do his diligence and uh, tag these guys in the post on Instagram. I will do my best, my man. See what I can find, and yeah. All right. So, did you have uh, an oh shit moment, maybe? Or oh god, I've had so many oh shit moments in my life. Give it up. Pass it. Ah, let's forget about it. We're going to drag Terry back onto the show and uh, of Cler- Terry of Claire and Forge, my weekly shout out. And uh, he go. and I will tell stories of things that we've done where it's been like, oh, shit. I'll just let you guys have that episode to yourself. <laughs> yeah, just me and Terry being like, these are the stupid things we've done in our lives. Oh, yeah, I've done plenty of those. <laughs> Anything that would be a good word of wisdom for our listeners that was a no shit moment for you in the uh, blacksmithing world. Oh, in the blacksmithing world, I thought you meant in life. Yeah, I can give a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's try to keep it blacksmithing related, something that can help our listeners um, out. Man, uh, just keep a, keep a bucket of water or fire extinguisher in your shop close by, man. I've had, I've had a close call, man. You know, where a piece of hot something rolls into a bad area. And, yeah. No yeah. bueno. Have a fire extinguisher. Check it. Yeah. yeah. Have a couple of them if you can. If you're uh, in a bigger shop like what I've got, it's a good idea to have a couple of them. Yeah. I, I think in my shop, it's, uh, you know, you're never with, uh, further than about five feet from the fire extinguisher because the shop's I, not that I big. I had a fire extinguisher, but it was like, I don't know, expired or just froze up or something because I tried to use it and it did not work. Like I said, yeah. you got to check those things. Check them. I have my, you know, I have my uh, slack tub there, which is, a, you know, one of them small grease drums and I have it full of water and windshield washer fluid. So it doesn't, you 
That is wicked. That is such a good idea. Kennedy works in the frozen north. Right? Dude, don't use RV antifreeze because it starts to stink. Right. Like fish? Yeah, it, gets, it gets so nasty, man. <laughs> so I switched to uh, windshield washer fluid and man, it's Smart. a night and day difference, man. But I always keep like a little five gallon bucket of water too, just in case something happens, man. Like I, I, I'll just whoosh. <laughs> I think, is windshield wiper fluid on its own not flammable? No. There's no? not a high enough alcohol okay. content in it. It's oh, just okay. enough to keep it from freezing. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't freeze my, my tank. Like down at the very bottom of my of my uh drum, it'll it gets slushy down in there, but that's about it. That's hilarious. Great, I ve- very well might be taking that tip and using it this winter because my slack dump <laughs> always freezes. Yeah, so if you keep things in it, like you keep, like I'll, I'll keep my like I always weld rebar on the billets, you know. So when I cut them off, I'll throw them in there because they're still hot, and yeah. then I'll forget about them. But and they'll freeze in there, solid, you know, like the sword and the stone. Yep. So you're sitting there trying to, you know, and I just give up. But uh, the top of the tub isn't frozen, you know. If it's a really cold uh, day, you know, start to get slushy. I, I haven't had no problems, man. It works great. Top tip, man. That's wicked. Yeah, that's um, good, yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing we were trying to do was um, song suggestions song- for the playlist. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's hear what you got. No, I will base which one I'm going to pick off what you pick. Oh, it's all these, dude. Freddie Jackson, man. Freddie Jackson? Freddie Jackson. I have no yeah, idea who that is. Yeah. Get down music, man. <laughs> what song? Uh, um, what is that song? What, what's the, I don't I don't know the name of it. What genre of music is this? It's like uh, oldies, like uh, I, I don't hmm. oldies music. Oldies, uh, moldy oldies. I should have wrote mine down because I totally forgot it now. Lando. <laughs> I'm not a dude. I don't listen to like, I can't stand new country music. I don't like heavy metal, crazy music, bro. I just like oldies, uh, uh, you know, soothe music, man. Like easy listening, dude. Hmm. That's the kind of stuff I like to listen Nothing to. Nothing wrong with that, man. Yeah. All right. Lando is pointing. What's yours, Nick? Me? Okay, I'm gonna go in the complete opposite direction. I'm gonna go with like, like something real death and napalm. Uh, March of the Fire Ants by Mastodon. Cool. <laughs> I'm trying to keep my music picks diverse because last week I I threw out something real weird, and this week I'm like, all right, like I said, let's, let's he wants he threw threw out something that's a bit more in the trad side. I'm gonna be like, all right. Well, Seriously, like death and day, Bob. You guys heard of like Al Green, right? Yeah. Teddy Pendergrass, you know those kind of guys. Yeah, so it's kind yeah. of like pre-Motown yeah. and Motown sort of. Yeah. yeah, that's the kind. Of, that's what I like, dude. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's what you mean when you said getting down music. <laughs> yeah, yeah dude. Barry White. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's another good one. Dude. Oh, what, baby? 
Yeah. All right, let it know uh, your turn. I I've mentioned this gentleman before, and I actually read out a verse of his song when he passed away. Jesse Stewart from the Maritimes. He wrote a song called Cry Tunes, which he became famous for overnight in a viral video that uh, he re- his friends released to YouTube, actually, that they filmed him singing around a campfire while drinking beer in the backyard, playing on his, not a ukulele, it's something else, it's a tiny little guitar that he just freaking rips off of, and... Jesse Stewart was a troubled soul that had some amazing musical talent and unfortunately succumbed to his troubles about a year ago now, I believe it would have been. Oh, and, man. Uh, so that's, uh, that's my, my song choice of the week is Jesse, Jesse Stewart, Cry Tunes. Right on, man. Like I, I'm frequently referring to uh, my ongoing mental health crisis, and while I like to joke about it, for the love of God, people, if if you're feeling down and if you're getting those kinds of thoughts and stuff, find somebody to talk to. People will talk to you. It's hard, well, but talk to somebody. His his situation was very much drug related. So yep. I I I know that's a complicating factor, but there's help out there. Yeah. Hey, can I give one more shout out? Oh, absolutely. Let's get us back onto the cheery topics. <laughs> My uh, a good friend of mine, Gabe uh, Fletcher. Man, he's the owner of Anchorage Brewing. Sweet. And, uh, he Hell has, yeah. He has. Uh, he's got an Instagram Anchorage Brewing Company, and then uh, his forge is Anchorage Forge. Nice. Uh, Brewery yeah. and a forge. Yeah, dude, right next to each other. His his, his uh shop is right behind the brewery, man. Oh, that's actually, sick. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, he just he just had Mareko up, you know, over the summertime, and I I went over there and got to meet the guy and and see him work a little bit, and he just he built he the guy went from never being able to forge anything, you know, never making a blade last winter, and the work that he and he's been doing it for a year, and he wants to make chef's knives, and dude, he got so good in just a year, man. He's one of those guys who's just got talent, huh? Yeah, dude, that's that's how he did with his brewery, man. Like he makes some awesome beers, man. Like, there's there's a trick to learning to learning curves, man. If you understand how that works, man, you can fucking learn anything absolutely. so yes, fast. Absolutely, dude. I know. And yeah. it's really cool because he's done a lot of these collaborations with uh, Mareko and, and Neil Kamimura, oh, making these like beers. So sick. Wow. Yeah, he made these. He's he's made these like beers, like bladesmith beers, man. One's called Momasi, um, and then another oh. one he just did with Neil, uh, Tammy Mura. Did you guys talk beer. about this on Hustle and Grind? Um, I don't, I don't think so. Who no. the fuck? I heard about this. Maybe it was on Knife Talk. Maybe Morocco was talking about it on Knife Talk. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was. Okay. Yeah, it was they were talking about it on Knife Talk? Yeah, and uh, like Neil sent a bunch of his uh, coffee beans over. They use that in, in the beer. Oh, it's so cool. Fancy yeah. beer. Yeah, dude, I thought, I, I just think it's really cool what he's doing, man. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more to come. So oh, I just want to give him a big shout out, man. He's been working hard. Right on, dude. Right, right on, buddy. Big shout out. 
Well, thank you so much for having a chat with us. This was absolutely fascinating. Yes, sir. Yeah, I hope so. Fuck yeah. You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot more deeper you can get into the subject. Fascinating to me. Don't worry, I'll be spamming your uh, Instagram inbox. Hey, <laughs> do it. I, I, if I can help, if any, I, you know, I'm not. I'll help anybody that I can, you know, and, and tell you what I know. I mean, a lot of the stuff I just don't memorize. I don't have it all in my head memorized. I have it all here, you know. It, it, like I said, I've got information right at my fingertips. You know? Some of it I can't really share uh, because, like, a lot of the certain diagrams and stuff, they don't, you know, it's kind of kept to the society. There's sure. trade um, secrets involved in this. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to really, you know, I, I would never do anything to those guys to piss them off because they're so helpful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure, eh? Oh, yeah, eh? Oh, no, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, for sure, eh? Oh, yeah, no, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Take off. <laughs> what was that cartoon or TV show or something where they, there was like a bunch of Canadians, that's all they said it was, eh? Uh, could be the. That was like cartoon Bobby's World, wasn't it? They were in Canada. It's entirely possible. Yeah, (laughs) that sounds familiar. Frankly, it kind of sounds like real life. You know, they're all sitting there going, "Hey." It's like saying "I am Groot" with all the different toads. (laughs) That's Canadian, Canadian English. Hey, hey, up here. I've had people ask me, "Don't you guys live in igloos?" Like, no. Well, yeah. I have a home. <laughs> I don't know if there's anybody that lives in igloos anymore, man. No, they like, they, they don't. A lot of the natives don't live in it. I mean, they might make them for you know traditional. Purposes, right, exactly. There's definitely uh, native villages up here that are very isolated. Yeah. You know? Have you ever yeah. gone and visited any of that? Or oh yeah, I've been to a lot of villages for work, man. Oh, for sure. Hey, yeah. Yeah, like we'll be rebuilding a runway or something, you know, and I'll be out there, you know, working. It sucks because you're there for the whole time, five months or something. And there's nothing there. Yeah, Yeah, there's nothing there. I mean, you're working all the time, so it doesn't really matter, like, but you're living there. It's not like you can just, oh, man, I'm going to go run and get a pizza tonight. No. Yeah, eh? <laughs> there's no roads there. You have to fly in. Have you ever gone to know any of them? The, vill- the villagers? The, yeah, got to spend any oh, time yeah. with them. We'll, we'll hire them. We'll hire some of the locals to like run rock trucks okay. or they'll be laborers or something. Yeah, they always hire uh, locals. I just, I, I have a, I have a lot of uh, respect for native tradition and practices and stuff like that. And if I ever have a yeah, chance to, to, you know, get to talk to the people about that, if I was spending time in the area, I always, you know, soak up what I can, right? Yeah, I have a really good friend who's Yupik Eskimo. I consider him a family friend. Um, he lives in uh, Kotzebue, Alaska, which is, I guess you could say, kind of a little bit bigger village. Um, but yeah, awesome dude, man. Hunter. There's a lot of boat crabs out there. It's, it's yeah, they got a it's crazy life, man. That's awesome, dude. Sweet. Uh, you know to do the sheepskin, bud? Yeah, I think it's about time. 
Okay. Okay. Me? You? No. Spencer. Oh. Oh, Spencer. Okay. You know how to do it? I don't know. What is that, dude? I'm lost. All right. Good day. <laughs> Don't worry about it, man. It's, this is just Your our giggle. lunacy coming through. Your giggle is so cute. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Well, uh, Spencer, it was a super splendid chat, and uh, I think we tried to say goodbye once already. We'll try saying goodbye again. We'll see how, how long this goodbye lasts for. Yeah. I think the last one lasted about 20 minutes. <laughs> No, I appreciate you guys having me on, man. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Brilliant chat, dude. For sure, dude. Yeah, it was fuck amazing. Another really great glad. episode. I'm glad to be on the podcast, man. Oh man, I'm getting stoked on this. This podcast is just like I feel like I'm doing all the right things when it comes to this, man. And everybody that comes on, I'm just like, this is like I'm so awesome like every episode is just getting cooler and cooler it's just all sorts of fun yeah man that is right on where are we next week what are we who are we bringing on next week uh i don't know you're the one who sorts this shit out (laughs) i just show up i'm just here to like like try to oh don't do this like i'm just showing you a piece of paper through like the webcam like it just does not work dude it was there's no one there oh there's no one there all right well i i'm sure you've got got a surprise lined up i've got i've got a surprise coming up for you next week remember i told you yeah i have totally forgotten but that's okay i'll get a surprise next week (laughs) that makes it that makes it a real surprise if if i if you remember it it wouldn't be a surprise yeah exactly It's real easy to surprise me with information. I'm just like, we talked about that? Oh. All right, let's shut her down, man. All right. Cheers. Good day. Good day.